Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm going to call it now. Hey, burning in the new hot nights. Seven o'clock, SENZ, 0800-150-811 is the number. That is 0800-150-811 is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. looking to try and generate some talk back between 7 and 8. Give people an opportunity to have their say. You've been listening to a number of interviews, opinion throughout the day here on SENZ. Why not have your say on 0800-150-811? As I say, every night... Talkback Radio is a better experience when you do jump on the phone, when you become part of it. Feel free, as I said, to text us here on 8833. Feel free to abuse me. Get there out on Twitter. Come after me. If you do that, as long as I'm concerned, I've done my job. I have got a level of engagement from you. Uh, Equally too, though, I always say this. Um, I learned how to switch a radio off when I was five years of age. So if you're going to keep abusing me, um, yeah, maybe I want to just think about that. Anyway, I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that. I don't cop a lot, but I don't. Anytime you seem to have an opinion, you're always going to open yourself up. As I said, 0800 150 Um Ben, 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 good evening. Welcome. How are you? I'm great, mate. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Good. Hey, tonight on the program, Steve Mintz, um, manager for the Auckland Tuatara. Uh, they've, uh, the, base, the Australian Baseball League officially returns to North Harbour Stadium Friday night, two year hiatus. And a Tuatara team that doesn't look too bad on paper actually has performed pretty well through the first two series. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing what Steve has to say. Of course, it's going to be a big occasion this weekend at North Harbour Stadium. And we're also going to have the voice of the America's Cup. Uh, we're going to have Peter Lester on the programme at 8.30, just get a little bit of an update. Team New Zealand taking a pretty heavy crash with their test boat out on the Waitamata Harbour. How much damage has this set their preparation back? Also, too, they recently, last weekend, had the New Zealand Yachting Awards as well, who took away the gongs. And, of course, Ben, we'll have plenty of reaction, um, highlights uh, off the back of day three of the FIFA Football World Cup. Yeah, we were talking about this was just before we came on air. We had to kind of eat our words a little bit with some of those results, uh, one of them being described as one of the biggest in World Cup history. Yeah, without doubt. Um, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. Uh, what it does, it gives all those other lesser nations, those so-called lesser nations at the Football World Cup that perhaps don't come with the big reputations or perhaps the legacy, now belief that they can tip up anybody. And we saw Tunisia and Denmark play out a nil-all draw as well. And that wants to be the first uh, little thing I want to put out there tonight. What are the greatest upsets in sport? 
love you to tell me what the greatest upsets in sport are based on the fact that Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in the Football World Cup today. There have been some beauties in the history of FIFA. England getting beaten by the United States in 1950. Okay? You've got to go back to, I'm just trying to remember, New Zealand, Italy, even 2010, where we drew a one-all draw. Nobody expected little old New Zealand not to get destroyed by the might of the Italians. Cameroon beating Argentina back in 1990, the defending champions. This was before the African nations sort of emerged and started to establish themselves as, um, well, as a continent, gaining parity with, say, Europe and South and North America, etc. Senegal, another one who beat France, 2002, FIFA World Cup. France, the defending champions. So there have been some big upsets. You might want to phone up. It doesn't just have to be around the FIFA Football World Cup. What have been the big upsets in sport over the years? 0800 150 is the number. Uh, look, I, I, I want to bring this up. Uh, we discussed this last night on the program, and that is the draw for next year's Rugby World Cup. You would have heard me go along about, I've just had a guts full of New Zealand rugby, firstly making the game all about the All Blacks, making it top-heavy and killing every other form of the game below it, from club rugby, might have 10 cup, and now super rugby with the best players not playing and South Africa no longer being involved. And then you hear Ian Foster come out and say, look, I'm happy with where this team's at. Basically saying, I'm happy with where this team is he- heading into next year's World Cup. So we're now reducing all black performances down to once every four years, judge us on this. But the Rugby World Cup, and has been pointed out, the draw for each Rugby World Cup or the pools or the groups are done pretty quickly after the World Cup concludes. And so you've got in Pool A, France and New Zealand. Scotland in there as well. Pool B, you've got South Africa and Ireland. Now, the problem here is when we get to quarterfinal time, Pool A plays Pool B. So the winner of Pool A plays the runner-up in Pool B. The winner of Pool B plays the runner-up in Pool A. So after the quarterfinals, on one side of the draw... The four best sides were going to have only two left. Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand and France, two out of those four teams are going to exit the tournament after the quarterfinals. And it could easily be us. So two things here. Poorly, poorly done by World Rugby. The other side of the draw is a joke. Australia, Wales, England and Argentina. I mean, those four sides have got it just so much easier than pools A and B. But is there not a danger here? We could potentially go out on the quarterfinals and here we are for four years overthinking it, for four years trying to develop combinations, losing tests in the process of doing it, resting players for super rugby. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to go through pool play. We're going to put a strong side out against France in the first game. Then we're going to rest and rotate. And then we're going to make sure the starting lineup gets a game against some minnow. And then basically we've got a World Cup final in the quarters. We haven't seen enough from Foster's All Blacks to suggest that we can beat South Africa or Ireland in a quarter final. My point being, is it really, really worth 
the damaging the All Black brand and its winning percentage, its invincibility perception, is it really worth killing Super Rugby by resting row players when there's a good chance you could exit in the quarterfinals? 0800-150-811. What do you make of that draw? How do we approach this? And how can World Rugby have two pools so heavily stacked with the four best teams and the other two pools comparatively weak? You want the four best teams primarily seeded so that they could potentially meet each other in the semi-final. Surely that's the way you do a competition, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, but it comes yeah, it comes down to the whole thing how the rankings were after the previous World Cup and how the other teams finished. I think it came into the the World Cup equation mm. as well. So I think you know I got a team like Scotland kind of came into that third pool bracket because it because uh, they missed out on the quarterfinals last time so why why do the draw so far out as is, is the real issue oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one is the number you can text us here on double eight double three would love to get your thoughts on this at uh, the second point and i've got to say this frustrates the hell out of me another article in stuff another journalist coming out and saying that women's golf Lydia Coe's being shortchanged and playing this pay parity with the men's, talking about the gender pay gap. What part of economics don't these journalists get? There's a reason why the men get paid more in professional golf than why women than what women get paid in professional golf. It's got nothing to do with your genetics. It's got nothing to do with you being a male and you being a female and some sort of um, dominance by men. It's pure economics. Watch the major golf championships. See how many people turn up to watch the men's majors. See how many people turn up and watch the women's majors. In fact, can someone text me through what the five major championships are in women's golf? Can someone jump on the phone and tell me 10 of the top 10 women's golfers in the world? The reason why the women aren't getting paid as much as the men at the moment are television deals based on the number of sets of eyes and interest in the game. This is not political. This is not the patriarchy dominating women. And I wish that these journalists would actually write with a greater level of accuracy rather than just these sweeping statements because they do themselves no credibility at all whatsoever. Should I get paid the same as Mike Hosking? Because according to this journalist, I should. Because I do the same job as he does. But why does Mike Hosking get paid a million dollars a year and I don't? Because he has a massive audience and because he's got a massive audience, he brings in a lot of advertising dollars. Should the men's netball team get paid the same as the women's netball team? Well, according to this journalist, yes, they should. She relitigates the fact that the men's all-black team got $150,000 bonuses and the women got 25000 Who pays for this? Mm. 
Rugby has taken, men's rugby has taken 130, 140 years to build to get to the point where within a certain part of the world it has a global audience. Women's rugby is just starting. You can't just automatically say, here, you do the same as we do, get paid the same. Who's going to pay for it? Do these journalists who write this actually turn up and watch any of the sport? Are they, is this journalist here going to go along and watch Alpiki Women's Super Rugby? Is she going to go along and watch the Farrah Palmer Cup? I guarantee she doesn't. But she'll sit there and make out that the pay gap is purely based on what's between your legs. And it's an absolute load of rubbish. And I wish they'd stop doing it, and I wish they'd stop politicising it. Do your homework, find out why there is a difference. Okay? Why do some movie stars get paid more than others? Because it's called box office. You know, this ideology that these, and they are predominantly women journalists, continue to write is a dangerous one. Forget merit. You do the same job, get paid the same as me, but it's not the same job. 0800 150 Had a guts full of the rhetoric. It ruined the Women's Rugby World Cup. It's based on market forces, man. It's that simple. So let's go and pay these people the same money. And who ultimately loses out? Grassroots. Those people below. You have to earn the right. There are some sports people that get paid nothing, who actually work harder than the golfers, work harder than the rugby players. What, should we set up a government fund for them so that they get paid as well because they're putting the same hours in as some of these other sports that are just blessed to have a television audience? It's got to stop this nonsense. And we should be allowed to speak freely about it without being accused of being sexist or chauvinists. I've had a guts for when it comes to it. It's called market forces. It is that damn simple. The LPGA is separate to the PGA. The WTA is separate to the ATP, the men's and women's tennis things. They know what the economics are. I mean, I know a lot of endurance athletes who just sit there and cannot believe how much golfers and cricketers get paid. I know endurance athletes that work twice as hard, four times harder than any rugby player. But because their sport doesn't have the huge television audiences, they don't get paid really anything unless they perform at the highest level. And what about a men's softball team? Is anyone out there asking for them to get paid the same, asking them for World Cup bonuses? They're the most successful New Zealand sports team we've got with seven world championships. Not one person in that sport has ever been knighted. Yet the All Blacks have won three World Cups and how many All Blacks have been knighted? So one minute you guys are preaching parody, talking about equality, but the very same media organisations that preach that then go and pick and choose what sports they want to promote. And they promote the sports that, guess what? Are going to bring readership, viewership and listenership. It's complete and utter hypocrisy.
Uh, someone's saying here, I completely agree, my friend. Uh, the women's rugby is going off the back of the All Blacks, which has taken over 100 years to build. They aren't as skilled. Well, look, it's not, about, it's not even about that. It's not about whether they're skilled or not. The point is, at the end of the day, they don't bring in the same amount of money. The one sport that does it well is the UFC. They promote women's and men's sport equally. And the top women mixed martial artists get paid the same as the men. Because the fights in that sport are equally as compelling as the men's fights. That is one sport that's got the model 100% correct. Ronda Rousey, I remember her being asked about the pay gap, and she answered it brilliantly. I might even see if I can get Ben to find it on YouTube, and I'll play it for you, because it is just pure common sense. And these journalists have got to stop simply saying that women's sport and men's sport need to get paid the same. There's, there's a pay gap. Like it's to do with oppression of women's rights. It's got nothing to do with it. It's purely for commercial reasons. There is a reason why the women's netball team get paid more than the men's netball team. There's a reason why women's tennis players get more than male triathletes. It's called television. It's called sponsorship. It's called worldwide audience. It's called interest. You know, to have our Prime Minister the other week come out and say that they should be getting paid the same is irresponsible. It just shows how little now she has when it comes to economics. Meanwhile, inflation's going through the roof. Interest rates are going up. People can't find workers. 17 minutes after 7. 0800 150811 is the number. It is 22 and a half minutes after 7. The telephone number is 0800 150 Text that's come in. Um, Mark, didn't Dana White about 10 or 15 years say that he wouldn't let women fight in the UFC? It's on YouTube. That was until Ronda Rousey brought in more money and viewers from George. Yeah, look, he might have initially thought, but look, the sport's evolved. Ronda Rousey was a huge name. She got paid a fortune because she was as big as the men's. I want to read you this article because it frustrates the hell out of me. Uh, Esther Taunton is the journalist. Um, Needs to go and listen to some Jordan Peterson, to be perfectly damn honest. Uh, She says, just as the fuss over the pay gap in one sport dies down, another example rears its inequitable head. Less than a week after New Zealand rugby confirmed the Black Ferns would each be paid 25,000 bonus for their World Cup victory over England, golfer Lydia Ko claimed the largest paycheck in the history of women's golf. The world number three pocketed a record US $2 for her win at the Alchip. PGA Tour ending CME Group Tour Championship in Florida. While Co's winning set a new benchmark for women's golf, the prize was significantly smaller than male golfers regularly receive. Okay. Um, now, oh, the second page here. Australian Cameron Smith banked $3.6 million for winning last year's Players' Championship, the richest event on the men's golf calendar. This year's US Golf Open winner, Englishman Matt Fitzpatrick, had a 3.51 million payday, while the US Masters champion Scotty Scheffler took home 2.7 million. The discrepancy in prize money and pay is not unique to golf or even unusual in sport. It's got nothing to do with gender. It's purely commercial. Stop this rhetoric. Stop politicising it. It's economics. 
There's a reason why the United States can afford to do things, have the military they have, and we can't. This is just red radio or red journalism. It's inaccurate and it just creates divide. Anyway, 0800 150 is the number. Jump on the phone, call me. Want to get your thoughts on that Rugby World Cup next year too. The way it is set up, they need to do this draw much closer to the World Cup. We've got the four best teams in the world all on one side of the draw. Two of the best four teams are going to exit the World Cup in the quarterfinals, and it could be New Zealand. And here we are trying to plan and build four years out for it. The Rugby World Cup is also going to come down to refereeing decisions. The rules are so open to interpretation. It's going to come down to red cards, yellow cards. And I think it. there was an article in the Herald uh, today almost um, saying what we've been saying, almost verbatim, that how much the Rugby World Cup is actually going to be a lottery. And what they mean by a lottery, the referee. I mean, Matthew Reynard, the Frenchman, should never be allowed to referee international rugby. Dreadful referee. That guy never referees a test where you're not talking about the referee the next day. And that is the problem with rugby. That's why it's never going to grow. That's why numbers in New Zealand are diminishing. I mean, concussion's a big one as well. But it's all just too complex. It's all just too complicated now. It's never going to become a truly global sport because it's too complex for non-rugby nations to be able to pick up and adapt and adopt. Sevens will always be the international standard or way of promoting the game. 26 and a half minutes after 7, 0800 150 811 is the number you can text us here on double eight double three. Steve, good evening. Yeah, good evening, Water. How are you, buddy? All very, good? very well, thank you. I've got a brown envelope for you too, by the way. Oh, I didn't get no, 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 no worries, mate. We'll catch up when we catch up. Hey, um, I'm on a, a group chat with a few rugby guys that I've... Um, that have been on a chat for about eight years or so and just slowly starting to deteriorate. The numbers are starting to drop off a little bit like the, the spectators or the interest that, that's in this game. And ironically, we're talking about the same old things all the time, about refereeing, about cards, you know, Russi Erasmus. There's not a bit of sympathy for Russi Erasmus, Erasmus uh, Wado because, mate, he's only really pointing out What's so wrong with the game? And for me, at the end of the bu- end of the day, the buck stops with World Rugby, mate. They just—I don't think they, they can quite see it. They, they made a whole lot of changes to the game to to try and speed it speed it up. But in essence, it's bogged down with so much litigation in terms of it, of its rules. It actually slows itself down. Like compare that England game to the Women's World Cup final, and there's no comparison, Mark. No, the Women's Rugby World Cup final was the way William Webb Ellis hoped rugby would be played. It's the way we like to see it being refereed. 
um, where you you know the referee's not involved, you're not talking about it. They they're consistent in terms of allowing the game to flow. There are probably rules that they could blow for, but they're not just not that pedantic. Uh, I mean, it's a bit like I think it's still illegal in this country to jaywalk, but no one's going to ever pick you up for jaywalking. There are just certain things you look past, and I agree. The women's game, and that's why the appeal is there, and that's why New Zealand rugby need to capitalise because it is a much better product. I mean, Steve, we've been lucky enough to be involved in a women's rugby tournament recently together, and we thoroughly enjoyed what we saw there oh. um, because it, it's almost uh, it's almost a little bit of deja vu. It, it's going back to almost the twilight era, isn't it? Where you you know where you go, boy. This, it was just such a simple game once, and it's become complicated. These referees have become celebrities. Um, yeah, and, and how do you adjust? How, how do you adjust? You, you get one interpretation one week and completely different interpretation from another referee the yep. following week. Yep, it, 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 it's, it, it's crazy. Like I was talking one of my friends on the, on the group chat does a bit of work for World Rugby, and um, he sat next to the boss of the referees, world referees when he was out here and basically asked the question, listen, why are we getting so much inconsistent in the game? And he saw black and blue that we are because the TMOs now, especially for Test Rugby, watch every second of the game. Well, I think that's half the problem. Well, the, but, the, but, but the, the mentality is, Steve, isn't it? They're now looking for reasons not to award. They're looking for the negative. They're not looking for the positive. They're looking to find fault. They'll slow it down enough to find fault. And I'll keep saying it, Steve, and me and you, the biggest, one of the biggest issues is continuing to watch the game in slow motion. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's almost like you've got Karen's, excuse, I shouldn't use that word. Oh, hey, hey Steve, like Steve use, you, you, you use whatever term you want, mate. It's a thing called freedom of speech. Mm. Yeah, it, it it just absolutely did my head. And I, I didn't watch the England All Black game live, but I watched the replay, and all I can say is thank God I could fast forward it. Stephen, for the first time in my life, and I say this genuinely, I didn't watch any of the three Northern Hemisphere games live. I have lost complete faith in New Zealand rugby. I've got no faith in... Um, Ian Foster, his appointment. I don't believe in this team, but more importantly, New Zealand rugby don't believe in me. New Zealand rugby no longer have shown me, the fan, enough respect for me now to get out of bed and watch this team and genuinely sit there and want them to win. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm not the only one that thinks that way, Steve. And I cannot understand for the life of me why New Zealand rugby cannot see this, how they are just so blinded, how they're so blinded by that they still believe that club rugby is not important, that they believe somehow the Mitre 10 Cup in the current state it's in is still okay. They still believe that, hey, it's still okay for the All Blacks to rest and rotate through Super Rugby. You know, they honestly believe as long as we've got players coming out of St. Kennegan's and King's College, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, what, what pretty much summed it up for me was directly after that, you know, great World Cup win for our for our ladies. You know, usually a CEO would have been on the front foot straight away. But they had to basically wait till there was a whole lot of speculation in and around the ladies being paid a paid a bonus. And listen, I, I agree that they should have got a bonus. What I what I don't agree with is some of the trainer thought that's it's basically come out and why aren't they getting paid as much as the men? Well, that's, oh. that's another subject well, well, for another no, day. No, no but Steve, 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 I've discussed that. It's economics. It's basic. It's a business model. Yeah. Why don't I get paid the same as Mike Hosking? I do the same job when I was yeah. on ZB. Why didn't I get paid the same? Yeah. It's pure economics. Why don't our I mean, net, yeah. netballers get paid the same as the women? It, it's just pure economics. And, and I'm right. sick and tired of this um, politicising of it and still going down – 
this path of oppression and that the only relationship that's ever existed between men and women has been one of dominance and it's just absolute nonsense. You know, trying to, this article and stuff at the moment written by Esther Taunton, trying to somehow say, how come Lydia Coe at the end of the year wins $2 million and yet Australian Cameron Smith banked 3.6 for winning the Players' Championship? Well, watch the major championships. See how many people turn up to each of these tournaments. Have a look at the television ratings. That is the reason why, and that's the only reason reason why, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many... I wonder whether Esther Taunton here is going to turn up and watch Opeki Women's Super Rugby. I wonder whether she's going to go and watch the Farrah Palmer Cup. I mean, what are they doing to get the two and a half million women in this country engaged to go, Steve? Yeah. Oh, mate, right on. Listen, it was great. It was fantastic in that moment. Country, but the challenge is move, moving forward. Yeah. They, they play out what a... Yeah, but Steve, that's it. So what have we got? We've got Australia over here who, they're not the Australian men's team. They're average as a women's team. And then what have we done? We've got a chance to capitalise on the success of this Black Ferns. And then what we've said is, no, go and play your sevens in Canada. And therefore, you think, oh, I wouldn't mind going watching Portia Woodman. She was a star last Well, she's not playing. Uh, Ruby Chewick, well, she's not playing. And you just sit there and go. Five of the number five of the key Blackfern players are not going to be available for their Super Rugby competition because they're going to be playing some meaningless sevens tournament in Canada. What part of this don't these morons running New Zealand rugby actually get in regards yeah, to yeah. capitalising on it? Yeah, your, your most your most rec- rec- recognisable face in women's rugby is away playing sevens. When and all truthfully, you should be marketing a around your 15s game. Well, no one's going to turn up. I mean, what, why don't why are crowds down on Super Rugby? Because you turn up, was Bowden Barrett playing tonight? We're not sure he's resting. Why? But he, didn't he just have three weeks through injury? Yeah, but that's separate to the mandate the All Blacks have on it. You know, why does no one go along and watch the Mitre 10 Cup anymore? Because no All Blacks play in it anymore. You, you, you know, it's just dumb stuff, Steve. But yet at the same time, at the same time, they want pay parity. It's economics. It's economics. Hey, thanks, Steve. Love to have you on the programme. Awesome, mate. 20, Cheers, buddy. 25 minutes away from 8. 0800 150 is a number. I was just saying to Ben during the break here, I wonder how the editors at Stuff allow this garbage to actually get printed because there's nothing factual in it. They're just sweeping statements based on a um, based on ideology that's not accurate, that is... A bygone era. Uh, the headline for this is women in sports still getting shortchanged on pay and prize money. They're not getting shortchanged. It's the commercial reality. It's a business model. I mean, I go and work in a, a dairy. 12 hours a day, I'm technically working. I'm selling a whole lot of products with small margins in them. And then you've got the guy next door who's got top end who's you know, making 10 times as much money. But what, we should equalise that? It's called communism, man. It's called socialism. And if you think it's a good model, look at the two Koreas, North Korea and South Korea. North Korea went down the path that this journalist basically saying should exist in sport. And South Korea went down based on a capitalist economic model which is about supply and demand. And ask yourself which country you'd rather live in. Now, we've been talking about the UFC and how they're the one sport that have done the whole parity thing brilliantly. 
and this is the classic thing that all sport women's sports should be aspiring to. You want to get paid the same as the men. You draw the audience. You make the product exciting. Ronda Rousey was the biggest name in UFC, really the first icon in women's mixed martial arts. Press conference, she was asked about the pay gap, she was asked about parity, and this is what she said at the press conference, and this is 100% backs up what I'm saying. I think that how much you get paid should have something to do with how much money you bring in. I'm the highest paid fighter, not because Dana and Lorenzo wanted to do something nice for the ladies. <laughs> they do it because I bring in the highest numbers. They do it because I make them the most money. And I think that the money that she, they make should be proportionate to the money that they bring in. Basic economics. Basic economics. I replay it again. Ben, it's just too much common sense in it. I need to hear it again. I just need to I hear it again. I think that how much you get paid should have something to do with how much money you bring in. I'm the highest paid fighter, not because Dana and Lorenzo wanted to do something nice for the ladies. <laughs> they do it because I bring in the highest numbers. They do it because I make them the most money. And I think that the money that she, they make should be proportionate to the money that they bring in. Hmm, there you go. It's that simple. And why these journalists don't bother ever telling that story is beyond me. It just actually switches a lot of people off. You know, if if there's an issue with our leading women's golfers not getting paid as much as our leading men's golfers, the issue should be with the two and a half million women in this country and why are they not watching it? Because clearly they're not. Because if they were watching it, you would have bigger prize money. Because that's economics. Um, it, it's actually, you read the article and you hear the comments that come from um, those that are running sport in this country. And it's a really dangerous ideology. It's a really dangerous path potentially we're going down. It's not sustainable. It's not economical. And you fudge the numbers, move the pieces around on the puzzle, and something's got to give somewhere else. And who ultimately end up missing out will be grassroots. Because if you want to... have equity and pay just simply because they do the same as the men do or the men do the same as the women or whatever way you want to look at the model, then the organisation is going to have money, is not going to have any money left to do anything else. Unless, of course, they go to Wellington and take the money off the money trees. 0800 is the number. Um, I didn't intend to go back down this path tonight, but that article just infuriated me, infuriated me. Because it's just poor journalism. It's propaganda is what it is. It's journalists pushing their political views. And I'm going to say an uneducated one too. It doesn't actually help. It's just ignorance. That's all it is, complete and utter ignorance.
I'm dying to know how many sports events these journalists that write this stuff actually attended last year. Anyway, if you want to have your say, 0800-150-811 is the number. Um, keen to get your thoughts too on the setup of that Rugby World Cup. I mean, will rugby have missed a beat here? Top four teams, and I'll say the top four teams, South Africa defending world champions, you've got Ireland, France and New Zealand. So the greatest historical side in the world in the All Blacks, you've got France and Ireland. Two of those nations are going out at the quarterfinal stage of the World Cup. How does that play out? Yet on the other side of the draw, Argentina, England, Wales and Australia. Doesn't sound particularly fair, does it? We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. It is 10 minutes away from 8. Uh, this is very much the opinion hour. After 8 o'clock, we'll change it up. Steve Mintz, the manager for the Auckland Tuatara in the Australian Baseball League, will join us on the programme. We welcome baseball back to Auckland, back to New Zealand for the first time in over two years as they take on the Sydney Blue Sox in a four-game series Friday, two games on Saturday and one game on Sunday. Um, we'll also catch up with Peter Lester, yachting commentator, get the latest on the America's Cup. Team New Zealand crashing their test boat. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the timelines leading up to the next America's Cup? How much damage was done? Does this set Team New Zealand back in terms of its development? Also, the New Zealand Yachting Awards were over the weekend, so we'll get a bit of a wrap of those as well. So we'll talk some sailing around about 8.30. Uh, throughout the evening, the telephone number is 0800 150 You can text us here on double eight double three. We will also look back, bring you highlights, courtesy of the commentary team across SEN in Australia, SENZ here, uh, looking back on the three World Cup games, disappointing performance from Australia, or are France just that good? Defending World Cup champions, it's a hell of a side on paper, France. Will they go back to back? Will they do what Brazil did in 1970, 1974? We'll look, get some reaction as well. Some very, very good games to look forward to tonight as well. Um, ben, 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 Ben. Look, I, I don't like coming on, mate, and going down this whole parody thing. Um, I felt I did it last week as well, but I do get just sick and tired of the same rhetoric being brought up and the politicising of sport in a really inaccurate way. And it is inaccurate. And these journalists need to be held accountable and they need to understand economics. And these sweeping statements is, is, is just completely and utterly dumb. Are the same journalists going to be asking if the men's softball team go and win another softball world championship and win their eighth? Are the same journalists going to be asking for bonuses for the men's softball team? Yeah, uh, and the one example that you know I can probably come up with the best you know, to kind of give a context to it would be with regards to darts. So at the moment, uh, Darts is an inclusive sport, so women are allowed to attempt to qualify for the World Darts Champs, but due to the rise in women's darts, people are saying, well, why don't you have a women's World Darts Championship? Barry Hearn, the big man behind it, is saying, 
Yeah, I won't rule it out, but, but we're not ready for that but yet. But we're not there yet. The sport's yet. not ready for it. It hasn't yet. organically grown yep. enough. Women are only just dipping their toes in it. Mind you, the men's game's only really just exploded in the last 10 years, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, and, so, so there's no point in having a product that just ends up being second rate. Well, exactly. And what they what they have been doing is when they first started, when the PDC started doing women's events, they had eight in the first year. Next year, there's going to be 24. This year, they had the first women's world match play, which had eight players, and they're going to do the same again yeah. next and, year. And, and, and just let it go and let and, the economics sort it out. And the prize money's slowly growing mm. every year. See, the thing that frustrates me with a lot of these sports people, they'll tell you that, oh, we've got to get paid. We're, we're making sacrifices. Oh, I can't stand that when I hear rugby players who are playing for the All Blacks or playing for the Black Ferns or playing for the Kiwi Ferns or the Kiwi Rugby League team, all oh, the sacrifices we've made. No, you're not. You're living your childhood dream, man. You are playing for your country at the highest level. You're not making a sacrifice. You're doing this because you're selfish, self-centred and driven. And you've got an ego. And you're endeared by your family and friends. Don't tell me this is a sacrifice. I chased the triathlon dream for 14 years. I loved every single day of it. I smashed myself to pieces. I did it because I wanted to. No one told me I had to. No one put a gun to my head. I didn't make a sacrifice. I made a decision, but I didn't make a sacrifice. And stop bringing out the damn violins. You do this because you're young, you love sport, and you want to reach the pinnacle of your sport before you get too old. It's not a sacrifice at all. Stop using that word and making out somehow we should give you a cuddle. Thank you. Thank you for making the great sacrifice for coming out and playing in front of 50,000 people and getting paid a million dollars a year. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. But oh no, our little woke media jump up and down on it. Oh, the sacrifice. They don't make sacrifices. The All Blacks for a hundred odd years were amateur. They seem to get the job done okay. I've got a whole bunch of friends who are triathletes who go around the world funding their way to Ironmans. They find a way. They train harder than any most athletes in any sport. But they do it because they want to. And they still manage to do other things in the background. Okay? Anyway. Uh, 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 yeah, that, that article just, just winds me up. It's dumb. It's divisive. And it's a dangerous ideology. It's called economics. Look, capitalism, supply and demand, whatever you want to call it, it's not perfect, but it's better than socialism and it's better than communism. And what these people are preaching... It's a very, very dangerous ideology. And it doesn't work. History proves it. Let it go organically. Let's just enjoy sport for what it is. Let's celebrate that wonderful women's semi-final of the Rugby World Cup, that wonderful women's final. Talking baseball after 8 o'clock, we're talking America's Cup as well. 8 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Ben, two more sleeps. Two more sleeps... Tuatara, back at North Harbour Stadium, baseball live, back on our shores after a two-year hiatus. Cannot wait. You can see the excitement on your face. Brilliant. One of the best broadcasting experiences I had a couple of years ago. I want to encourage people, get along to North Harbour Stadium this weekend, Friday night, two games on Saturday, one on Sunday. Look, even just go along initially for the novelty factor, because once you're there, you will come back. This is world-class baseball, and the Tuatara are good.
They're playing in the Australian Baseball League against some very good teams in a competition that is well and truly established. The teams all have affiliation with the major leagues, major league clubs, and the talent on display is simply remarkable. And there's a nice mix of a New Zealand flavour as well, but also the United Nations. The man who's in charge of all of this is one of the best managers in all of baseball. Was a professional himself, made his major league debut on the May, May 18th, 1995 for the San Francisco Giants. These days, he's the coach of the Texas Rangers minor league team, the Down Eastwood Ducks. He gives up his time to come down here every summer to try and promote the game of baseball in New Zealand and get the best out of an eclectic mix of baseball players. His name is Steve Mintz. He joins us on the programme tonight. Steve, good evening. Welcome. Great introduction, man. I love it. (laughs) What have you missed about New Zealand? I'll tell you, when 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 I first started this endeavor, it was just the fact to be able to come over here and uh, build something, you know, to try to change the culture, um, get baseball uh, going, get people excited about it. And that's that's what keeps drawing me back, just the fact that we get to to start at the bottom and, and build this thing up and um, get the people of New Zealand something to be proud about uh, with a baseball team. Steve, you've had some remarkable experiences in baseball. It's been your life as a player, as a manager, as a mentor, the Tuatara season two years ago when they um, won the uh, National League East Division, where does that sit for you in terms of what you actually had to endure um, that season with the Tuatara? Yeah, it was uh, uh, no doubt um, a special season. A lot of a lot of things went into um, turmoil there, you know, before the season started with the passing of Ryan Costello. Um, and it, it took us it took us a couple of weeks, you know, to to gather ourselves and to, to kind of rebound from a punch in the gut if you wanna say. Um, but when we when we called our stride and we started um, you know, doing the things that we knew that we could do when the season started, um, it just it just kept snowballing. Um, and the the guys all, you know, believed in one another and um, we were you know, we, we all played with some, some pain that year and uh, when we were able to, that game we played against Brisbane here at North Harbor and um, got that win to, to clinch that spot, I'm going to tell you it was uh, the the feel of relief uh, accomplishment and then um, just to, to be able to do that for New Zealand and let them have something to be proud about. Um, there was definitely a ton of emotion going on um, that night for sure. Yeah, frustrating because I think we started the season with about 500 people tuning up. By the time we got to that Brisbane game, there were almost 5,000 people at a game and then things were looking good to build on that momentum and then clearly COVID came along and it feels like we're almost starting again. Are you confident that we can we can capture the public again this year with the Tuatara team? Absolutely. You know, we've been, we've been trying to get out and do some things in the community and um, trying to get as many people on TV, radio, whatever we can do to talk about it. But, you know, the um, one thing I have learned about New Zealand in the, you know, the three or four years that I've been coming here is that they, they, they love a winner, you know. And if we do our job on the field, um, we, we feel like the people are going to come out and get behind us because, like you said, we, 
I mean, we had the second largest crowd ever in ABL history in just our second year um, over here in New Zealand. And we, we intend to try to break it. We, we would love to have the biggest crowd ever um, at an ABL baseball game. And, yeah, it might take us a little bit, you know, to kind of get things rolling. Um, but, but I just feel like the, from what I know of the people in New Zealand, that they're going to get out and they're going to they're gonna back us and they're going to come out there and support, you know, their team. I keep, I keep telling everybody, you know, like this, this is New Zealand's team. It's the Tuatara is the New Zealand team. And, and we want people to believe that um, and know that everything that we're doing is to try to put a winner on the field here for New Zealand. Steve, you're the current manager of the Down Eastwood Ducks, which is affiliated double um, uh, A team for the Texas Rangers. Imagine there's reasonable resource there. Suddenly, you've got to come to New Zealand. This is an organisation that run on the smell of an oily rag. You've got a group of players that have come together that you don't get a lot of time to work with. You've got to try and mould them pretty quickly. How challenging is it as a manager? And and do you rise to that? Do, do you is that what you know? Do you get a real kick and a drive out of that challenge? Yeah, I mean, that that's all part of being a manager, you know, and um, first and foremost, it goes with the staff that you pick, you know, and Darren Bragg, you know, he's been with me here since day one, and, you know, he, me, me and him, uh, even when COVID struck and we didn't play that first year, you know, we were we were still committed to come back whenever we could come back, you know, and, and now we've added Robbie Price, a pitching coach from the San Diego Padres, and we got um, uh, Gus Ledger, which is a, a, a local guy here, you know, that can uh, teach guys culture and, and what it is to, to be a, a, you know, a New Zealand resident. Um, and then we're adding uh, Gretchen Alcorn. You know, she's a, a, a Kiwi and she's a, a coach with the New York Mets organization. You know, so first and foremost, getting that staff together and, and putting them and un- making sure that they understand, you know, what we're doing. And then we got Frank Fister, um, which is uh, doing our third base coaching. And he actually, Bragg actually coached him, and he's worked uh, with the Anaheim Angels, you know. So we feel like the staff that we've put together is phenomenal. And then when you get the players in, you know, they're coming. we got Venezuela, we got American, we got Taiwanese, we got Japanese, we got Kiwis. And to get these guys in, um, making sure that they understand, you know, there, there's one common goal. Yeah, we've come from all over the world. Um, but there's one common goal. We've come here to uh, represent New Zealand and represent the Tuatar to the best of our ability, and just getting them all on board. Um, you know, that's that that's the part of a you know a manager and his staff is to make sure that these guys understand expectations and standards. Um, but all the while, we're doing everything that we do with respect and integrity um, for the game, uh, for this country, and and for baseball. You mentioned Gus Ledger there. Gus, uh, well-known here in rugby circles, particularly in the 1990s, played for Tonga at the World Cup. I remember talking to you a couple of years ago. You rate this guy. You think he's a very smart man, maybe underrated in terms of his knowledge um, from a softball background originally, but has a lot to offer. And again, is um, a, a real... You know, again, showing that New Zealand baseball is moving in the right direction with some of the intellectual property that we have here. Yeah, um, uh, um, unbelievable resource uh, for for being here in New Zealand. Um, uh, you know, a couple of years ago we had him and we had Johnny Salvi too. Um, you know, but having those guys uh, a part of what we're doing, um, and then uh, making sure that these players, I've explained a lot about you know the culture and the, and the Maori, you know, things that go on and all that stuff, so that people understand once they step on the island. But having Gus there 
um, to be able to reiterate these things and to, you know, talk about the history of New Zealand and, and then with his baseball knowledge, you know, to be able to, to give that to these guys that come over and that they've never been to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're trying to, uh, yes, we want to win baseball games. So we want to make sure that these guys uh, understand, you know, where they're coming um, uh, and what they're going to be a part of and, you know, what it means to the people of New Zealand. And, and Gus is huge in, in you know, in trying to uh, relay that message to the people that come and don't know. Uh, fans want to see the Tuatara win, and I don't think they really care too much about the makeup of where the players come from. As you said, they see it very much as a New Zealand team. But look, it is important in time to try and develop some of the local talent. And there are uh, a few Kiwis that will be in the starting lineup, and a close that are on, and, and a number that are on the fringe of making the starting lineup. But there's also a number of development players as part of the wider squad. How important is that? Uh, it's huge. I mean, and the the ones that we have, they're going to be um, they're, they're going to be uh, very important um, to our uh, what we do. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jason Matthews. Um, he, he's been phenomenal for the first eight games. Um, we got uh, Clayton uh, Campbell um, that has uh, uh, once again. You know, he he's he's adding to everything that we're doing. Um, we got uh, Gleason, you know, a guy that just got through with his college career, and he's coming over and, you know, trying to figure out a way to possibly, you know, get uh, an affiliated team to pick him up. And Kyle Golofsky and Elliot Johnson, um, and then we just we're we're so happy uh, with the progress that our Kiwis have made, and and then uh, just in those you know, two rounds, uh, the contributions that they have made to help us win baseball games and. And we don't uh, we, we don't anticipate that falling off because uh, those guys are going to be in there. Um, they're going to play, and you know, starting on Friday, they get to play in front of their home crowd. Um, and and we're going to uh, make sure that uh, the, the people of uh, you know New Zealand get to see their own play. And 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 we are going to rely on those guys heavily um, for what we accomplished this year. You're listening to SENZ. My guest on the program is the Auckland Tuatara manager, American Steve Mintz, who himself played in the major leagues. A very good coaching staff that supports this young group of men trying to create history in this country in a sport that is growing very quickly. Steve um, started started this ABL season away at the Brisbane Bandits, ended up losing that series 3-1. You summed it up nicely in an article for Stuff where you talked about getting behind on the count uh, with our pitchers, our hitters not making the right decisions um, with players on base. They seem to address that. They seem to have taken that on board for the series against Canberra, uh, winning that series 3-1. How delighted were you with that shift? Oh, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, we, you know, we let, we, we let some games get away from us in Brisbane. There's no, there's no doubt. And, you know, we understood that. And um, after the series... Um, we took a look at what we've done and, you know, we talked about the 22 walks and the 27 people that we left on base and, you know, just trying to reiterate to these guys, like we, we don't need them to be like outstanding. We just need everybody to do what they're capable of doing. And if it's, you know, hitting a home run, that's fine. If it's catching the ball and throwing at the first base, that's good. If it's throwing strikes and working in the count, that's all we need because, We've got a 22-man roster, and then, you know, we can add development players, but it's going to take every single one of them. There's not uh, one guy, you know, even as good as uh, Mr. Lynn is out there at shortstop, 
we've got to have more people than just him to be able to win baseball games. And uh, that's what we're trying to reiterate to these guys is just like, hey, just, just do what you're capable of doing, and if we all do that, then we're going to be fine. And so going into that Canberra series, um, you know, they took it to heart, and we, we threw a lot more strikes. We had the – actually, the game we lost, that was the that was the game that we walked a bunch of people. And so <laughs> kind of reiterates, like I told you all, we don't, don't walk people, and we got a chance to win, you know, so – um, but it was good to see that the guys, you know, heard the message and we got better and we're hoping, you know, this weekend against Sydney, you know, that will improve even more. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that I guess, was the next question. So, yeah, what areas are you looking to try and improve in or is it just building on what was already discussed? Yeah, we just want to continue to improve each day. And uh, some of our starting pitching, you know, we're still trying to figure out which ones we want to start and go for, um, and then trying to stretch those guys out uh, a little at a time uh, because we need them. We need them for the whole for the whole series or for the whole year. So we're trying to stretch those guys out, give everybody opportunities to do and um, uh, contribute to what we're doing. And then as we move forward, then we'll start, you know, nailing down some different spots and and trying to put people in place to. Uh, help us get into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, it's a home game. It's a home series. But I would imagine for these players, it would almost feel a little bit foreign because these players came in. They haven't really had a chance to really do anything at North Harbour Stadium because the ground wasn't quite ready. They then jump on a plane. They go to Brisbane. They've been in Australia basically for the last 10 days. So at what point does North Harbour Stadium genuinely start to feel like it's you know it's your home stadium, it's your home base? Are we there yet with these guys? Nothing makes your home stadium feel like your home stadium than a crowd full of people. I can tell you that. When you've got when you've got people in the stands and they're cheering you on and screaming when you strike somebody out or when you drive in a run, um, that's how that's that's how you know that your home stadium is your home stadium. Um, the field, um, there's no doubt. Um, everybody, you can ask anybody in the ABL. Um, we have the best grounds in the league. Like, it's not even close. And so um, we've tried to, you know, reiterate that to the guys. And um, Yes, we haven't been able to get on it and run around and do what we need to do, but um, the, the, the grounds will be um, impeccable, you know, when we get on there. And so, um, but the home field thing, uh, it's, the, it's the fans, 100% the fans, you know, when they come out and they're behind us and we've got our music playing, and uh, our fans cheer, and then that's how you know that you're at your home ballpark. Mm. Uh, Steve, and the players um, through this first two or three weeks, have they are they enjoying their time in Australia? Are they enjoying their time here in New Zealand? Are they enjoying playing in the A-League and being part of this Tuatara team? They are, you know, I'm, and I ask them frequently, you know, because we want to win and everything, you know, but we want to make sure that, you know, people are happy and that they're enjoying themselves and that they have everything that they need. Um, so I ask them, you know, hey, man, you having fun? You enjoying it? You know, just making sure. And um, and then we have, you know, other people in place. Uh, uh, Pandy, you know, she helps us with our player wellness. You know, so if, you know, somebody's maybe missing home or they're missing, uh, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving or something, you know, we're going to use her to try to, 
you know, help these guys and guide them through because, you know, some of them have never done this before where they've left mm-hmm. and been away from family, you know, on the other side of the world for this long. And, you know, so we, we just try to make sure that we have everything available to them um, to be able to do and enjoy. And like today, you know, we trained yesterday and today there were some guys that had to throw some bullpens and stuff, but I was just like, hey, go enjoy New Zealand, get in the car, drive to the beach, go do whatever it is you want to do, you know, and enjoy New Zealand. Um, so we try to make sure that we allow them to do that um, as much as possible. Okay, Steve, just before we let you go, just a message to people out there listening. We want to try and get as many people along over the next sort of eight to ten weeks to North Harbour Stadium. There will be five home series, and then hopefully beyond that, the playoffs. What's the message? We just want everybody to come out. Like, we're just, like, we're so excited to get back here, to run out on the field um, for our fans here in New Zealand. And we do. And I know people, they fly in. You know, they fly in from all over the country to come in and watch these series. And I just want the people to know that we're going to put on a great brand of baseball. Um, We're going to play as hard as we can every time we're out there. I'm not saying we're going to win every single game, but when we've got a, a stadium full of people, it makes it a whole lot easier to, to be able to have good results every night, you know. And so we are. We're just we're hoping Friday night that the, that lines out the gate like it was when we had that playoff game, and I was out there talking to people and, and revving them up before they came for the game, you know. So um, we do. We just want people to know that we're here, we're ready, and and we want to perform for them. We want to be able to have them in the seats and and to go out and uh, do our show and um, represent New Zealand and the Tuatara to the best of our ability. That's the one thing that we can promise. Steve Mintz, lovely to have you on the programme. Look forward to catching up uh, with you at some point, hopefully on uh, Friday evening or Friday afternoon, and look all the very best in this first home series against the uh, Sydney Blue Sox. Cheers, mate. Anytime, man. I'll, I'll talk to you anytime. You know me. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. No, you're a good man. You're a good man and an outstanding manager. Blessed to have him in this country. The coaching staff is remarkable. Darren Bragg, having played eight or nine seasons with the Boston Red Sox. I mean, we are talking quality baseball. I do encourage you, look, if you just want something different, go along, watch it. Yes, it's a game dominated by the ball, but there's a lot of activity going on. It's so much greater than the sum of its parts. Of course, hopefully, I think Sky might be picking it up on one of their channels. There's also a live stream too. Just go through the ABL website. 19 and a half minutes after 8, you are listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 If you do want to have your say, uh, happy to talk anything you want. We are going to talk some America's Cup shortly. 24 minutes after, just a text that came in earlier from, um, oh, actually about quarter past seven, Honei Nepi, and I do apologise, Honei, for not reading this out. Uh, kia ora, are you guys having anything on the World Cup softball starting on Saturday? Look, I'm, I'm not sure if we're doing anything. I'm sure we'll do some updates. I'm sure we'll get some people on as the tournament progresses. But it's interesting, isn't it? Media organisations who keep screaming for parity and equity uh, seem to be ignoring the Softball World Championships, our most successful sports team. I wonder why that is. Um, I mean, if we want equity, surely we have equity right across the board, don't we? Or that's just virtue signalling. And perhaps softball, they don't think is commercially relevant enough to jump up and down about it like they did with the Women's Rugby World Cup and other sporting events. Why isn't the Men's Softball World Championship getting more coverage? How come nobody in that sport's been knighted? 
Will there be a call for the men getting bonuses if they win another world championship? If not, why not? Uh, look, we're going to talk the America's Cup with Peter Lester shortly, just to get a bit of an update. The New Zealand test boat capsized um, some days back, a bit of damage done. Uh, there were also the New Zealand Yachting Awards on, so we'll Pete attended those. We'll get a bit of an update on who took out the major gongs. But I did a, a little comment piece this morning with Ian Smith, and Smithy asked me who I thought, he asked me whether or not Lydia Ko would be win the Halberg Award or go close. And certainly in the discussion, I think, is, my, is what he might have said. And I said, look, yeah, absolutely. She deserves to be in the discussion without a doubt. But she didn't actually win a major championship this year. But I just needed to remind everybody too about Zoe Sadowski's Senate. Because um, I'd imagine that there'll be a number of the women's rugby team that'll be put up for individual honours. Uh, the team will clearly probably take out team of the year. But let's not forget what Zoe Sadowski Sinnott did. She won our first ever Winter Olympic Games gold medal. She also won a bronze medal. We've won three bronze, one silver and one gold in the history of the Winter Olympics. Annalisa Koberger being the first ever medalist back in 92 and was it Lillehammer um, in the slalom. And then it's been Sadowski Sinnott that won our first gold and so she should take out the sportswoman of the year and she should take the overall gong it's the Olympics and to prove the fact to prove how difficult it is is simply in the numbers how many medals have we won not many to quote scribe if any not many if any anyway um, but you might have some thoughts too just on we're sort of getting to that time of the year aren't we just maybe some thoughts on those Halberg nominees, Sportsman of the Year, Sportswoman of the Year, Team of the Year, the overall gong. But it would be absolutely shameful if Zoe Sadowski Senate didn't win this. And this just became a popularity contest based on recent media coverage. Text us here, double eight double three. You can phone the program too if you want to have a discussion on that. Oh and eight hundred one five eight double one. Don't forget also. I did have the Commonwealth Games this year and a number of standout performances there as well. I just hope those that are judging or yeah, those that are judges do do their due diligence and don't just be lazy and go, oh, they've got a lot of media coverage because there are certain sports here that do just get more media coverage. And that sometimes creates a bit of an unfair perception where sometimes if you go actually and do your homework on it, you'll find that a lot of the sports that get a lot of coverage here aren't actually truly global, and some other achievements from some other athletes and other sports are actually far greater. But text us here, double eight, double three. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Peter Lester. We'll talk the America's Cup. It is 27 minutes away from 9 o'clock. Well, just a couple of days ago, the AC40, the test boat for the New Zealand America's Cup team, capsized off... Waiheke Island in around about 15 to 20 knots of wind. A lot of damage done to the boat. Is this a major setback for Team New Zealand or is this just something you plan for? How much of a concern is there in the fact that the crew lost control of this boat? Well, the voice of the America's Cup, Peter Lester, joins us on the programme. Uh, Peter, good evening, welcome. G'day, Watto, how are you? Uh, firstly, just explain to people exactly what did happen a couple of days ago um, off the north of Waiheke Island. 
Yeah, Monday they're out uh, training off Waiheke, um, off the northern side in, in, in big big breeze. They actually said sort of around 15 knots, but it was peaking quite a lot higher than that and quite big seaway running. My understanding is um, they were going pretty well. And um, these boats are on the edge, of course, but they lost control. They nosedived, and, and when they did the nosedive, the boat d- jibed as well and, and capsized. Um, so the damage would have been done when they actually nosedived and the, the bow of the boat went under the water and uh, they um, have essentially broken the foredeck on the boat and and the bulkhead forward of the crash bulkhead, which prevents the boat from sinking, also got damaged. So they'll probably be in the shed, I would have thought, anywhere from two to three weeks to, to, to repair. They'll get that done and they'll get back out. They'll be fine. I think um, it's important to just point out this is a half-size boat, 40-footer, uh, and, and it, it can have two configurations on this boat. So when they first got the boat, which are actually designed by Emirates Team New Zealand but built in China and then the fit out the final fit out was done when the boat arrived in New Zealand so the boat went in the water as a one design boat so all these 40 footers will be used by the teams each team's got to have one uh, for the Youth America's Cup and the Women's America's Cup in that configuration they're one design all exactly the same Team New Zealand, when they first sailed the boat, had it in that one design configuration. But just in the last two weeks, they've gone into America's Cup mode. And that means the flying of the boat um, has to be done manually, as as it is in the America's Cup. Um, In the one design configuration, it's actually uh, under an autopilot, so it flies itself. So they were actually testing... A, a, a system that might be incorporated in the in the next America's Cup boat that they'll start building sort of mid next year. So look, um, yeah, better to find it now than later on is, mm. is probably my summary, and it is repairable very much. And was it the number one crew on board? Were Burling and Tuke at the helm? My understanding, Burling and and uh, Nathan Outridge were on board, the two helmsmen. Um, yeah, Tuke was there. He'd have been flying the boat. Um, and and um, um, yes, yeah, so they, they, there's only four people on the 40 footer. Um, so they yeah they had their ace, aces on board, but as we know with these things, if, if they come unstuck, as we saw at the last America's Cup with with uh, American Magic, and it was about those same conditions that American Magic actually capsized. A very similar day, quite gnarly, big seas and, and big gusts of wind. So yeah, interesting. Hey, th- these boats are on the edge. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was talking about that 15 to 20 knots. I mean, what's the maximum that's going to be in Barcelona? Was it a little irresponsible going out in these conditions? No, 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 you've got to push them. You've got to push them, and, and you know, there's no error, there's no safety margin in the construction of these things. If, if they have too much safety margin in terms of construction, the boats get heavy. If you don't have enough, you, you end up with a situation like they're dealing with now. To probably do the repair, the, the, the weight gain will probably be only in the region of six or seven kilos. So it's very, very fine margins of engineering for the, so that the crew can push the boat hard. Okay, in terms of the development, though, you said this boat might take two or three weeks to repair. So what, does that set the program back? I mean, how do they, what, where does the adjustment come? What, what, what do they do now? 
Um, overall, no. They're better to find out now. Um, they've got a, another one of these 40-footers actually arriving, and that's about to... I don't think it's quite here yet, coming in. Um, so they once they get that boat, they'll commission it. So Team New Zealand are actually going to have two of these one-design 40s, one in one design, probably one in the open configuration to test. Um, probably in terms of the this far out from the cup, does it have much impact? Um, I, I see the impact as reasonably positive because of, of what they will have learned from what went on on Monday. Mm, OK, Peter. Uh, look, the other thing, over the weekend you attended the New Zealand Yachting Awards. Uh, who won the gongs there? What were some of the uh, the stories that came out of that? Uh, Thomas Saunders won overall the Sir Bernard Ferguson Trophy. Um, he won that on the back of winning the Laser World Championships in 2021. Um, and he's the only he's the second New Zealander to have won that Laser Worlds over the what 40 or 45 years that the laser's been around. So, you know, in terms of uh, winning world championships for Olympic disciplines, that, that was a big one. Nick Burford was so, the only so, other guy that's ever won the Laser Worlds. Yeah, where's he from? Uh, he's from Tauranga, um, and. Uh, a very good sailor, one to watch out for. Actually, looking looking ahead, if he can qualify for um, for you know twenty twenty four in Marseille, so uh, the Olympic well, sailings down in Marseille. I mean, it's such a popular boat, the Laser. I mean, you always see the lasers out there. Why have why have it been such slim pickings for us at a world championship level? Because it's a bloody hard one to win. It's tough. Because the laser itself, in terms of one design, is true one design. The boats are relatively cheap, um, and and therefore the the numbers that sail lasers around the world are huge. Um, New Zealand's been close. You know, we've been the likes of Hamish Peppers been very close. Obviously, um, um, you know, through even Dean Barker, uh, Russell Coots had a dabble in them. Um, we've had some very very good sailors, but. The, the class actually over the last sort of 15 years has been dominated by the Aussies, yeah. and we saw it even in um, even in Tokyo. You know, the, the, the Australians, um, Tom Burton won the gold medal there. The Aussies have been stronger than the New Zealanders in the laser class. So um, for Saunders to have won, that was a good effort. The other interesting one is one of the designers from Team New Zealand got um, Yachts Woman of the Year for winning the WASP. World Championships um, on Lake Garda, and and that was Elise Beavis. Now she in her in her day job, she's one of the, you know, real hotshot um, engineer designers at Team New Zealand. So you know she's a world champion and and also one of the real uh, leading forces for design down at um, uh, down at Team New Zealand. So that was a, you know, that was very well received for her to. to to win that. Yeah, Peter, Peter, people won't be familiar, say, with the Wasp. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have heard of that category of boat. Is that, is that a, a foiling boat? Is there um, some similarities there between the technology around the America's Cup? Well, in, yeah, in a, in a, but a hell of a lot more basic. So what it is, it's a 12-foot dinghy that's on foils. Um, and they, um, they're not an Olympic class, they're an international class, but I think from memory they're about 145 entrants at that World Championship, um, and um, she at least finished 22nd overall and, and first woman, and I think from memory there are about 30 women in the fleet. Look, in terms of... I think it's just great that, a, that a, one of the real... Um, brains of our sport in terms of America's Cup gets out there, gets her feet wet, and won a world championship. Great effort. Mm-hmm. And other winners? 
Um, and in terms of across the field, there was um, some of the other notables. You know, when you come down, they have sort of the service awards and, and high performance awards. Um, there were um, Peter Burling's team in, in, in terms of Sale GP. They, they got acknowledged in the performance awards. Um, which I thought was, you know, reasonably significant. And uh, um, in terms of um, across the field, the, the youth team were acknowledged. And the, the night was a big night. And the Governor-General was there, which I thought was um, was great. Mm-hmm. Hey, Peter, just going back to the lasers, is it true, mate, that you still sail a laser and that you've had to be rescued a lot out there in the Waitamata Harbour? You've got caught up in the Ngāpipi shift and <laughs> you're sort of confusing ability with ambition these days, mate, and that you're not quite as athletic or as strong as you once were. Is, is that true, Peter? Uh, all true, all true, <laughs> all true. I did have a dabble actually a few years ago. I know you did, later. Peter, and I remember you telling and, me you uh, capsized or you ran aground somewhere out there by a lady rang a toto. Well, I don't know if I rang a ground, but several times capsized. They are an extremely difficult boat to sail. And, and when you look at the likes of Tom Saunders, what they can do, um, they make the boat dance. They're, they're actually a really basic mm. boat. They first came on the scene, what, 1974, first world tour yep. in Bermuda, uh, and they've been an, Olymp- you know, an Olympic class for oh, the best part of 20 years, but incredibly difficult to sail um, and an absolute beast of a boat. So to win the Laser Worlds for Tom Saunders, yeah, big, big gong. Yeah, yeah, just someone wanting to text in too, someone genuinely texting in going, can you please <laughs> tell me what the Narpipi Road shift is? Oh, I've been through this before with you. Different Narpipi audience, Road, Peter, different knows. audience, Peter. It, it, it be, <laughs> during the America's Cup, the last America's Cup on the Waitamata Harbour, uh, somewhere opposite <laughs> North Head or Devonport, the terminology came out, that was the Narpipi Road shift. What is the Narpipi Road shift? People have heard, people have heard of the um, uh, what is it over there in Perth, the Fremantle Doctor. What is the Narpipi Road shift? <laughs> well, in, in real terms, the Narpipi, well, Narpipi Road runs runs, of course, off Tamaki Drive. That's where those lovely little boat sheds are around the waterfront. Now, if you sail eighteen footers or twelve footers or down at Akarana. Uh, yacht club. Um, if you, if it's south, southerly, southwest, it always pays to punch into the left-hand side of the track, going upwind towards Compass Dolphin or up where the um, up where the Coast Guard are and the the bottom end of Ferguson Wharf of the container terminal. Because as um, Oraki Basin opens up and and now Pippia Road runs around there, of course, there's a shift, a big left-hand shift. And if you're a local yokel, you can hook into that lift. And, and make a gain. Well, I took the liberty in the America's Cup. In fact, they were right over the other side of the harbour, but it, you know how it just rolls off the tongue, Watto, when we do a commentary. I just threw in the nub. Team New Zealand made a, a lead change in the Ngāpipi Road shift. Well, you've dined out on that ever since. Well, I know, mate, because I don't make things up as a commentator, Peter. <laughs> I, just, I, didn't quite make, I, didn't, I didn't quite make it up. I just took the liberty of, um, you know, saying, well, it's a left-hand shift and it might as well be done. Yeah, right? no. it, 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 it worked at the time. No, brilliant, Peter. Hey, look, lovely to have you on the programme. Thanks for the update on the America's Cup as well. All the best, mate. Cheers. Thank you, Peter Lester there, uh, talking the America's Cup. Yeah, so Team New Zealand, they were testing uh, under manual flight control. Northwest of Waiheke Island, ran about 15 to 20 knots of wind speed, uh, large waves. And while sailing downwind at over 40 knots of boat speed, the crew lost control uh, of what they call the ride height, which caused the rudder 
and the elevator to come out of the water. This resulted in a high-speed, uh, uncontrolled jibe and simultaneous deep dive, uh, deep nose dive, and which then clearly led to the capsize. So a little bit lucky, not mucking around on these boats, but you've got to find out what your Everest is, don't you? You've got to fall over the edge sometimes to climb back up and go, OK, I know what my limits are now. Let's go back, do it again. Let's get close to it. Let's be a bit better at it. 14 minutes away from nine, you're listening to SENZ. Coming up after nine o'clock, David Turner will join us on the programme. We'll talk some motorsport. I see that the Repco Supercars Championship calendar has been announced for next year. Interesting that there is no Auckland or South Auckland fixture. Pukekohe shutting down, of course, and then looking to move it further south by about, I don't know, 15, 20 kilometres. What's the, what's the motorsport I tracked down. I'm just having a mental block. Hampton Downs. Oh, Hampton Downs, of course, Hampton Downs. So it's going to actually kick off in Newcastle. Now, normally Newcastle historically has finished the season, but they're going to have the Newcastle 500, so an endurance event. Uh, the interesting one here that they're talking about is the one at Sandown. That's going to be a 500-kilometre race as well, which is going to be the lead-up to the Repco Bathurst 1000. So some really good enduro events, which will please a lot of the fans. Um, so we'll talk to David Turner about that. We'll just find out also what are our drivers up to uh, are coming up over the New Zealand summer. Um, I'd imagine in certain categories or class of car, there are off-seasons. Um, what can we look forward to here in New Zealand? What can we look forward to internationally throughout the New Zealand summer? Uh, we'll also talk to we're going to talk to a gentleman out of the UK who uh, specialises in football in Manchester United around this Cristiano Ronaldo story. Cristiano Ronaldo uh, basically being sacked by Manchester United today. His time up at the club is done and dusted. It's now up to the fans and time to determine his legacy. It'll always be a great legacy with his first stint at the club. No one will ever deny that. Uh, and maybe in time they will forgive him for his recent comments. Martin Guptill uh, deciding today that he wants to opt out of his New Zealand cricket contract. He wants to go and become a gun for hire. Been dropped recently from this current T20 team to play India. Didn't play at the T20 World Cup and is not playing this next one-day series. Played 198 one-day internationals for New Zealand, Martin Guptill. Averages around 42 and averages 31 at T20 level. And I think he'll go down in one day history as one of our best Ross Taylor Nathan Astle Brendan McCullum the likes of Martin Crow it'd be interesting if you were to name our greatest ever one day team whether Martin Gupta would be in the mix certainly would be if it was just games played at home perhaps his most famous inning was 2015 Cricket World Cup Quarter final against the West Indies, he batted right through. I think he hit the first ball, I think he hit the last ball. Um, so look, well done to Martin Guptill on a remarkable career. Originally coming out of um, Avondale College here in Auckland. And more than 15 years at the top level. Uh, let's hope that he can cash in on that um, legacy. Put some dollars in the bank. I think another one that's probably been poorly handled by New Zealand cricket. Uh, but like every player's time comes to an end. Some get out on their own terms. Some are dropped. I see Ross Taylor's going to play another season of Plunkett Shield cricket. And I have no problem if these guys are good enough, if they want to continue to play. It's not up to us to tell them to retire. It's not going to damage his legacy. 
Some people say, yeah, but he's taking the spot of a younger player. Yeah, but he also brings that experience and therefore he's a great role model for those younger, talented players coming through. So some interesting news in the world of cricket. The crowd figures for the Melbourne Cricket Stadium yesterday, um, I think they had it, what did they have it at Ben? About 10,000, didn't they? Something preposterous like that. But it looked even less than that. Lowest one-day crowd ever at the MCG, which reiterates one of the talking points that we brought up last night is the challenge for cricket to somehow rediscover the magic of the coloured clothing game, the white ball game. Seems to me that the IPL's come along. It seems to be the major focus for our players. A lot of one-day series just seem to be scheduled. Um, Odd times. It doesn't really seem to be too much for grabs. They're no longer legacy matches where a win creates a sense of nationalism for a decent period of time. And test cricket, well, unless you're India, England or Australia, you always only ever seem to get the scraps. And so some real challenges for cricket going forward, not just here in New Zealand, but right around the world. England, India, I don't know, they might be okay. Bigger populations. But what does the game need to do in this part of the world to recapture the magic? Might have a look at that again sometime after nine o'clock but we're talking motorsport next as we come up to four and a half minutes away from nine o'clock some classic aerosmith takes me back to my time of living in japan in about 1989 1990 discovering the entire back catalogue of aerosmith did my first hawaii ironman in 1993 and at the prize giving they'd put together the slideshow which was really cool Images over the entire week, including the race itself, and they had that song in the back as the background music. I've never forgotten it. Baiting the power of music, and now it can just conjure up images and take you back to a place in time. And not dissimilar to certain smells as well. Very, very powerful thing is music. But we're going to digress. We're going to talk motorsport because the Supercar Championship, the Repcoat Supercar Championship, has just announced its calendar for 2023. There will be 12 rounds. It'll start in Newcastle on March 10th. It'll finish in Adelaide on November 23rd to 26th. The interesting thing about this is there's no round in New Zealand. There is no round at Hampton Downs. To discuss this and other motorsport news is Mr Motorsport himself, David Turner. David, good evening. Welcome. I could feel you then, Mark, thinking about what you were going to call me. Well, no, I, I must admit, I was, yeah, I, I mean, you text me a whole lot of things. So I had God, I had expert, I, I had legend, and I was just trying to choose which one of those ones that you'd sent me to, yeah, use yeah. as a reference there, David. Okay, well, we'll live with the Iron Man story from Hawaii. But, yeah, the big news today, obviously, the supercar calendar. Um, I, I've got an opinion on it, if you want the opinion version, or I could give you the politically correct version. No, give me the opinion version. I, I love opinion. I'm not sure that, that that's who I am. That's what I do. Look, the Supercar Championship, without a doubt, has a, f- a very firm place in, in motorsport uh, on both sides of the Tasman. Um, New Zealanders have supported it for a long time. And uh, if you look back through the record books, which is actually something I did just a few weeks ago, you'll find that for the last, I think uh, from memory, it was about the last five championships have all been won by New Zealanders. So very sorry, Australia, thanks for coming, but we've won the championship for quite some time now. 
But the bottom line fact is, is that New Zealand is an important market to the Supercar Championship. I know that from my days at TVNZ when I produced the Pukekohe round. The television market is very important to Australia. Obviously, the through-the-gate market is very important. We saw that at the final farewell take two, if you like, at Pukekohe this year. Um, the issues over Hampton Downs, some of those have always been there. You know, there's always been an issue about resource consent, right from when Tony Roberts uh, and that built the place was the fact that there was consent issues about traffic flow onto State Highway 1 uh, and the number of people that you could have on the venue. So those things are not a surprise. They've been around for quite some time. They can be resolved, of course, and with Tony Quinn owning Hampton Downs now, I'm sure there's a will and a way. But um, from the opinion point of view, yes, it's very sad that they're not here. The good part about it in some ways, and I urge commercial sponsors that were going to be involved in supercar is don't forget we have a very strong and can have a very strong domestic championship and money that is sometimes spent just for that one meeting at Pukekohe or, or Hampton Downs now in this case could be spent across a calendar year whether it be with uh, the rally championship or the circuit championship or even the endurance championship uh, rather than being you know, thrown away, if you like, in some ways, at, at a supercar meeting. That's not taking it away from supercar because it's a great meeting, but there's only so many sponsor dollars to go around. So, yeah, we can live without it for a year. Um, it's not ideal, but it can be dealt with. And, and I think that maybe the Australians will also realise how powerful the New Zealand market is because I'm sure that they'll be vocal. Uh, and, you know, they're going to miss a lot of fan support and they're going to miss selling a lot of merchandise in New Zealand, that's for sure. Sorry, interesting to see here that there's going to be um, a number of new endurance events or they're bringing back Sandown, which will be in September, 500-kilometre um, rafe, and that will be yeah. a curtain raiser for the 60th running of Bathurst. Yeah, you know, Sandown always had its place in the calendar as the forerunner to Bathurst, and then it hasn't been there in recent years for, you know, a multitude of reasons, including COVID, and then obviously hassles with the horse racing club there, a, a little bit similar to Pukekohe and the fact that Sandown is built around a horse racing facility, and that's very important and earns a lot of money for, you know, that facility. Um, but Sandown back in its more traditional position in the calendar and endurance racing kind of back to how it was a few years ago. I, I'm not opposed to that. I think that's good that you have a, a good enduro before Bathurst um, and on a circuit like that too where you're not really going to do a lot of damage to the cars because the crash damage that we saw this year both at, at Bathurst and, and at the Gold Coast round has just been phenomenal and some teams have got to be hemorrhaging big time on repair bills, way more than they estimated. I know Tickford is well, well, well over budget, over what they thought they would be in terms of crash damage. So, you know, all of those things play themselves out, Mark. I, I, look, I think we can live without supercar for a year. As I said, it's not ideal, um, and New Zealanders are very fond of it, but it will be back because they know they'll have mm. to come back because they know that it is a good market share. So it will return. Um, it's just getting around the issues of dealing with it at Hampton Downs, and that can be dealt with, absolutely can be dealt with. With Holden no longer being manufactured, no longer on the starting grid, we're going to have the Ford Mustang, we're going to have the Chevrolet Camaro. Uh, do they? Uh, do, does the sport lose a number of fans here, the Holden fans? No, I don't think so. I think they suddenly become Holden, um, you know, Chevy fans by default 
pretty much, uh, you know, it, it just happens that way. And we've seen that trend already with the Australian market accepting that. So I think the flow over will be the same. And in many eyes, it, it's still a red versus a blue anyway, even though it's kind of a more gold versus a blue. But um, no, I, d I don't see any any significant change in fan base there. And the driver loyalty thing's still going to, you know, always be there anyway. So, you know, for New Zealanders, it kind of... In some ways, it doesn't matter whether mm. what Van Gisbergen's driving, they're still going to support him. Okay, let's change it up, David. What do New Zealand motorsport fans have to look forward to over the New Zealand summer? How does the motorsport calendar play out through the months of December, January, February, and March? Well, it's it's changing and evolving all the time. I'm trying to keep my pulse on it a little bit as well, amongst other things that I'm doing. Um, so traditionally, there's been some race meetings before Christmas. They don't, they won't be happening. Um, Toyota Racing Series reappears again in January for a five-round series that uh, covers the length of the country. That's probably one of the star acts. And if you look at it, that's where a lot of not only our successful drivers and that you know are on the cusp of Formula One and, and other events around the world have come from, and other people like Lando Norris and and whatnot that are in Formula One have have come Lance Stroll. They've all come through Toyota Racing Series, so that's a, a good talent finder. It's an open wheel series. Doesn't always appeal to everyone, but it is. A, it's a very good talent finder for for things. So you know that that'll be around the January February period across the country, and you'll see you know some good supporting. Um, classes with that and then the New Zealand Endurance Championship or the North Island Endurance Championship kind of kicks off in that early part of the new year as well and then the Rally Championship's back by February so there's, there's a bit going on and then of course you know things that I'm actively involved in Western Spring Speedway we kick off this weekend you know if it's forever stops raining in Auckland um, but lots of speedways around the country as well and you know we've got American drivers coming down for the um, Christmas New Year period at Western Springs and you know, the calibre of driver there and, and the presentation of the cars and the level of preparation is bar none. You know, you could go to any speedway in the States and um, get uh, maybe a poorer show than what you get at Western Springs. So if you're in the Auckland area, you know, you're in for a good deal. And, you know, some of that series travels to Palmerston North and Bay Park and stuff as well. So it's worth keeping an eye out for. Yeah, where do we currently sit in the world standings when it comes to Speedway? I always remember growing up with Barry Butterworth. I clearly was lucky enough to go and see um, Ivan Major back there in 1976, 1977, being a Mount Albert boy. Remember drivers like Ted Tracy, um, some of the big American names coming over here. Where do we sit currently? Well, I think um, in terms of the solo bike racing, we've probably dropped off the radar quite a, brig, a bit since the, you know, the Barry Briggs, Ronnie Moore, Ivan Major period. Um, there's a few, but it's kind of it's become quite niche market. And you know, we saw the World Speedway Championship here a few years ago, and I, you know, it's still very popular, but it is niche market. Um, in terms of midget car racing, um, I think there's some incredible talent here. Michael Pickens is actually up in the west coast of the US at the moment. He's been up there for the last week and a half and uh, and done extremely well and he'll be going to Chili Bowl in the early part of January and uh, you know that's where the best of the best hang out so he's he's holding his head very high up there and this racing miles that he's doing over this past nine days in the US he's due home on Saturday um, we'll see him be incredibly strong come the, the Western Spring season so I, I think you know overall there's probably I would say, Mark, there's probably about a dozen drivers that if you took them from Western Springs right now and dumped them into the U.S., they'd all hold their own absolutely no problem at all.
Mm. Okay. What about drivers like Scotty McLaughlin, Scott Dixon, um, international drivers like Earl Bamba, Brendan Hartley? What does the next three or f- four months look like for them? Is it just off season? Uh, is there an off season? Um, what do they do? Uh, well, I know McLaughlin's in Australia at the moment, and he's at Adelaide uh, helping supercars with their TV commentary. Um, Dixon's doing some stuff, and then he's actually having Christmas holiday off. Um, I'm, Earl Bamber's been involved in the Porsche New Zealand Scholarship. Um, Brendan Hartley's just won the World Endurance Championship, so I'm sure he's enjoying a little bit of time off. Um, those guys are all lined up for drives at Daytona 24 hour and you know that's mid-January as well so it's it's actually not that far away on the radar and I was talking to a couple of guys that I know at at Ganassi Racing um, just yesterday actually and uh, they're already working on their Indianapolis car so it's just on November and that race is still seven months away and they are well and truly into their Indy 500 program already so uh, you know it shows you that it's a an ever-evolving business, uh, even though you think the season's go, you know, finished, there's, there's plenty going on. And for the drivers, you know, there's a, a fitness, you know, campaign to maintain all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, and for, for a lot of them, they are involved in Daytona, and that's going to come around awfully fast. So I know, you know, all those drivers that we just mentioned are potentially all racing at Daytona. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're well sought after, and they're good at what they do. Any other news? Anything else on the radar? Oh, look, I, th- I think there's quite a lot of interest in IndyCar. Um, they're talking about maybe expanding their calendar out to 20 races in 2024, which I think is fantastic. We might see a few more ovals on, on the deal. Um, we're already talking about 35, 36 cars for a 33 starting position for Indy 500 already. Um, engine manufacturers said that they can supply that fast, so there's no reason why that can't happen. So there's there's a little bit going on around IndyCar. There's some extra TV things coming around IndyCar that I think they're going to announce in December that I'm kind of aware of just because of some conversations. And I think that that will be good for the profile of IndyCar. Um, you know, obviously Formula One in Vegas uh, this time next year or November next year, um, that's going to be massive. Um, but so is the ticket prices. You know, they're just out of this world. And I, it will be very interesting to see whether Formula One can sustain charging the sort of money that they're talking about for the Vegas race um, long term. You know, it, it ain't a cheap exercise. What, 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 sort of, what sort of money are they talking? 500 bucks US for a general admission. Wow. Five... So it's, yeah, it's, it's not cheap, you know, but... Um, you know, Vegas, Vegas is a unique venue as well, and it's going to do all sorts of things. And, you know, you look at the track map and the recent demo they did down there and what they're building and, and everything. And it, it will be a phenomenal event, Mark. Don't get me wrong. It will be, you know, it, it will be a major. You cannot get a hotel room anywhere around there right now. Uh, and, you know, Vegas is known for the number of rooms it's got. So um, it, it will be a great event. So I think there's some good things coming for Formula One. they just got to control maybe um, their expansion, if you like. The expansion's great, but uh, as we know with all sport, you can hit a plateau if you're not careful, and there's only one way down after that. So, you know, I'm I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing out of IndyCar. It's very strong in the US. We've got, you know, maybe up to three drivers in the main game next year if Marcus Armstrong joins in as well, which I'm getting indication he will. Hunter McElroy in the Indy Lights Championship. Uh, Jacob Douglas in USF 2000. You know, there's a host of Kiwis there, so there's some there's some good things coming, and um, and New Zealand should be very proud of the fact that we have so many people across these categories that are performing 
at a high standard, not an average standard, but a high standard. Mm. I remember Michael Andretti uh, being an American driver who drove in Formula One. Um, but why don't yep. they ever seem to have a point of view? And do they need to have an American driver at the pointy end of the race to really for Formula One to really, really, um, you know, uh, establish itself in the United States alongside of NASCAR, alongside of IndyCar? Yeah, look, they've talked about it a lot, and obviously the three races in the U.S. is very significant now with the race in Austin, the race in Miami, and now the Vegas race. Um, Williams announced, obviously, over the weekend that Logan Sargent would be driving for them next year, and he is an American driver, so there will be an American on the grid. The Michael Andretti thing, well, I think the time at McLaren was wrong time, wrong car, wrong engine, wrong driver for the the mould at, at that given time. However, Michael's aspirations right now to have a US Formula 1 team are still there um, I don't know how he's going to do it because most of the teams are opposed to any team expansion at the moment but he's pretty determined that he wants to make that happen so there's some interest there I, again I just think a, a bit like the supercar thing that we were talking about you've got to be very careful that there's only so much disposable income even in the US to go to motorsport events just like there is here and if people are going to be going to three Formula One events in the US, IndyCar need to be very, very smart about how they conduct their business to not lose market share to that. They've got to deliver a good show. And I know already, you know, for Iowa next year, the doubleheader there, the concert lineup that they've got is absolutely phenomenal. So even if you're not into the racing, you're going to get two days of some really, really name artists performing on stage. So, you know, that's, that's a good step from them to, to combat you know, maybe what Formula One are doing. And they've just got to concentrate on their own game. And it's probably a little bit way back at what I was saying when we first started this conversation is that, yeah, we can miss a year without supercar. It's a chance to us exploit our own brand, but we need to do that. As a, as a sport in this country, we need to do it while we've got captive market and maybe the sponsorship dollar as well. David Turner, as always, thank you for taking the time tonight and joining us here on the program. Greatly appreciated. Welcome, Mark. A little bit of a rant for you tonight, but you get the general picture anyway. No, no, we get you on because we love your passion, David. We love your passion, mate, and you're uh, in, <laughs> and you're an encyclopedia. It's great to see, and you're passionate about New Zealand drivers, and that's why I ultimately drive sport. Hey, fantastic. 17 minutes after nine, you're listening to SENZ. Uh, anyone out there, uh, thoughts on New Zealand missing around of supercars? I don't think it's going to make too much difference. I mean, as long as Shane Van Gisbergen's winning, um, I think there'll always be a lot of interest, and you can't see him not winning next year or certainly being in the mix um, but boy it's amazing the depth that we've got at the moment in motorsport right around the world we really don't have that one point of view in Formula 1 but we still have the name McLaren associated with it a big name in Formula 1 um, but yeah so many other classes of car of motorsport that we do seem to have a point of view and it's great to see for such a small country 17 and a half minutes after 9 can't sing, eh, but I love to sing. I can't sing. I'm that guy that sings in the shower regularly, heading to Guns N' Roses a couple of weeks in Wellington. Looking forward to that as well. Uh, 22 minutes after nine, you're listening to SENZ. Uh, it's been a fascinating FIFA World Cup, and we'll have a look at this after 10, but the amount of additional time that's been added. And this is FIFA clamping down on time wasting. So if you want to time waste, we'll just add it on at the end. We saw it in a game between, I think it was Leeds and Liverpool this year, where Leeds, there's ended up being about nine minutes of extra time and Liverpool scored in that 
nine minutes, right at the end of that nine minutes of extra time. But if you go back through the game, there was a lot of time wasting. And it's probably not a bad initiative. I was involved with futsal over the weekend, which I hadn't commentated before, but thoroughly enjoyed the experience, the Ford Super League. I was live on Sky on Sunday, and it's basically FIFA football's indoor soccer, but to futsal players, it's its own sport. But it's interesting because the they play 20-minute halves, but every time the ball goes out, they stop the clock. So the games actually end up lasting 80 to 90 minutes. But you get a quality product because of it. There is no time wasting. If you want time to go, you've got to hold on to the ball. A lot of similarities between basketball, a lot of similarities between futsal and water polo. Uh, and ice hockey with the way they run their replacements in terms of lines and the way they set things up. So if you're wondering why there is so much extra time in these games, it's because of the time wasting. The England match against Iran lasted 117 minutes and 16 seconds. 14 minutes was added to the first half alone. Eight goals, 11 substitutions and a sickening head injury to a run goalkeeper contributed to the drastic extension. England completed 730 passes during the group stage match, the second most in any World Cup fixture that did not include extra time. According to Opta, I'm not sure what Opta are, the five halves with the most stoppage time in a World Cup match since records began in 1966, all have occurred in Qatar this week. So if you're looking at your schedule thinking, right, this game's going to last me about 90, 95 minutes plus half time, okay, I'll cruise into work off the back of it, or I'll schedule something in and around a World Cup football game, yeah, maybe add another 15 minutes onto that or even another 20 minutes. But what it does do, doesn't it? It gets rid of some of that so-called gamesmanship, that pushing the grade, that time-wasting that does go on. It is 25 minutes after nine. Tom McDermott, who's a football writer, does a lot for Manchester United, is going to join us on the programme very shortly to talk about the Cristiano Ronaldo situation, basically being sacked today by Manchester United. His time at United is up. Um, not a great relationship with new manager Eric Ten Hag. Where to now for him? Where to now for Manchester United? Where does Cristiano Ronaldo sit in the Manchester United history books? What is his legacy? Will he be remembered for his first stint at the club or will he be remembered for the recent interview? We'll find out shortly, 26 minutes after nine. Ben, 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 I was so hoping you were going to play Liverpool's song You'll Never Walk Alone just to welcome our new our guest onto the programme. I wouldn't dare. He's a hardcore Manchester United man. His name's Tom McDermott. He's an outstanding journalist. He's got a large social media following and does some very good podcasts. Tom does a lot of things in and around Manchester United. He joins us on the programme. Tom, good evening. Welcome. How are you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm a lot better, uh, given that you didn't, didn't give me that welcome with You'll Never Walk Alone, let me tell you. Oh, come on. Quietly, you'll love it. Quietly, you'll want to sing it. Quietly, you'll wish it was your <laughs> song, don't you? Come no, on. No, no, Surely no. You, not. 
You can't get me on that one. You yeah. can't get me on that uh, one. I've got a, I'm Liverpool hardcore, right? And I've got a son who was just desperate to get a Ronaldo shoot. He's, he's still eight. And I had to buy a Manchester United one because I couldn't find I couldn't find an old Real Madrid one. And so I've got my son walking around in the Manchester United shirt at the moment. It, it, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, Tom. Painful, I can imagine. But we're, we're, we're in that kind of uh, era. I don't know what it's like for you, for you, Mark and Ben, when you were growing up. It was very much... Um, you follow the team and, and the teams who you support, and that is still the case. But I think we're into kind of play, player FC as well, aren't we? And there's nothing wrong with that. That um, young supporters um, of the world will, will follow the the player rather than the club, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And Ronaldo, regardless of, of what's going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, yeah, um, so uh, he leaves Manchester United today. Um, both club and player uh, on a mutual agreement. Um, so where do the fans sit with this one? Is there a sense of relief? Um, what's the mood like around the club now this decision has been made? I think so. I think if you were to ask the supporters in the summer months, there was still a fair amount of support for Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, of course, he never attended pre-season training. He, he let it be known that he wanted to, to move on to, to a Champions League club. Uh, Manchester United couldn't offer that, of course. Um, and then he stayed, and then we've seen him um, leave the stadium at half time in the preseason friendly. Leave the stadium, um, refused to play against Tottenham Hotspur a, a, a few weeks ago, which incidentally was Manchester United's best performance since Sir Alex Ferguson has left. In my mind, um, so he's gone from that kind of performance and made it all about himself. We've then had sort of events in recent weeks um, where he, he he refused to play again. He, he said he was ill. We had the Piers Morgan inter- interview, which was really the straw. They broke the camel's back, so to speak. And because of that Piers Morgan interview, whatever you think of Ronaldo, whatever you think of your employers, whatever you think of your colleagues, you can't come out in any industry and be so critical. And, and I think when Manchester United supporters heard that, there was only there was only ever going to be one mm. um, one result, and that was him leaving the club. And, and actually, if you look at some of the, 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 the polls amongst Manchester United supporters um, and significant sort of podcasters over here, especially in the UK and in other parts of Europe and the world, as many as 80 and 90% of the people that responded on these polls were happy after that Piers Morgan uh, interview to, to to see to see the back of him. Yes, he was a, a, an unbelievable player in his first stint for Manchester United, and last season in particular, we saw one or two great moments. But um, ever since Manchester United were knocked out of the Champions League under Ralph Rangnick, I think in, in February of this year, for me the writing was on the wall. He was always going to going to leave, and it was just a question of when and not if. And I think his his, his recent behaviour has, has really, I wouldn't say turned supporters against him, but 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 left a bit of bit of a bitter taste in the mouth and, and for me certainly damaged his legacy um, a little bit. Mm, okay, but in that interview with Piers Morgan, he talked about this club hasn't really evolved since his last stint. Um, what existed, say, 10 years ago still exists now. Is there any truth in that? Has the club taken any of that on board? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, one of Mourinho's um, sort of issues when he joined Manchester United a few years ago and, and of course he got sat from Chelsea but Chelsea train at Cobham you've got Tottenham who have got a fantastic stadium I watched James Madison the Leicester City player be interviewed the other day and, and, and halfway through the interview he looked around the facilities and, and said to the, the guy who was interviewing he said look, look I've got the best training ground in the world here to, to, to practice and, and hone my skills Manchester United just haven't got that they haven't got the best 
training facilities that you know befit supposedly one of the biggest and best clubs in the world. The stadium needs a lick of paint. You look at um, some of these stadiums at the World Cup in Qatar; they look fantastic. Manchester United is is a is, is like an, an old historic museum. It still holds a great atmosphere. It's great for for travelling supporters to come and see. But actually, when you get inside the ground, it's miles behind. So. Some of the things he was saying about the infrastructure, some of the things he was saying about the training ground, some of the things he was saying about the, the Glazer family, there's a lot of truth in there as well. But I think when you come out and disrespect the manager and say that, you know, I, I don't respect the manager, criticising um, players, and, and of course, we can we all agree with his comments regarding the owners, but at the end of the day, he was still an employee of the club and, and picking up the best part of half a million pounds a week, you know, so... There was only going to be ever an outcome, but yes, there, there were parts of it which were true, and um, which you know have been well known for some years. And, and I made the point about Mourinho. Where where I was going was that was that when Mourinho joined Manchester United, I think he was a little surprised at the standard of the training ground in comparison to what he'd left at Real Madrid and Chelsea before that. Eric Ten Hag, the way he handled the Ronaldo situation, the way he managed him. Did that enhance his reputation? Did that endear himself to the fans making those tough calls, not being suckered into the superstar status that surrounded this guy? Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I think he's going even more strength and authority um, dealing with it in the way he has. I mean, this is a guy who probably turned up at Old Trafford, saw Ronaldo and saw his physical condition. Yeah, he looks great, but actually the legs are going slightly um, and has had to manage... Cristiano Ronaldo and tantrums and what's going on in the changing room. I believe that there's been a couple of other incidents where Ronaldo has caused one or two issues that haven't been publicised. Um, I wouldn't say it goes as far as being disrupting other players, but Ten Hag's had to deal with this day in, day out. And I think that his silence after the Pierce Morgan um, incident was fantastic. I think the way he's dealt and disciplined him. So, for example, the, 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 the pre-season friendly at Old Trafford where Ronaldo um, left the ground at half-time. It wasn't just Ronaldo, by the way, but Ten Hag um, disciplined and punished him, told him not to do it again. And then when he did do it again, he was straight in there, true to his word, very strict. And, and if you follow the rules, absolutely no problem. There probably was a role for Cristiano Ronaldo to play for Manchester United this season, but it wasn't in the way Ronaldo would have wanted. It would have been a, a sort of role from the substitute bench rather than playing every week. And, and that's partly due to intensity and, and the style of play Ten Hag wants. So, yes, Ten Hag, if anybody has come out a winner in this situation, certainly in the eyes of the Manchester United supporters, it's Eric Ten Hag, the way he's conducted himself, the way he's stuck to his word, and the way he's dealt with probably one of the, one of the greatest players ever and come out of top, I think, you know, speaks volumes, really. Yeah, for Cristiano Ronaldo, is this a case of a guy being 38? Everybody else can see that, you know, the legs are just starting to go, that he's just lost that yard of pace. He's not as busy as he once was. He doesn't cover as much ground as he once was. But the only guy that can't see it is Ronaldo. He still believes that he's the player that he's always been. And therefore, you build a team around me. Is that is that the way he sees it? Has that been the issue? Absolutely. I think the ego and the single-mindedness and the stubbornness that's taken him to the top has almost been his, his downfall. Um, players like not just Manchester United players, but I, I, I'll use them as an example. Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, um, even Roy King before he fell out with Sir Alex Ferguson. They realised that their legs couldn't do what it, they once could and adapted their games and still made a significant impact. Ryan Giggs was playing until he was 40, for, for, for instance. Paul Scholes till he was 37, 38. But what they did do, there was an acceptance that they couldn't play at that standard and that they were almost 
played and made an impact, you know, every other week rather than every Saturday and Tuesday evening. So Ronaldo hasn't, the penny hasn't dropped for Ronaldo in, in that sense yet. And, and, and the question is where he goes, because my understanding is that there, there isn't a, a long list of Champions League teams that A, will, are willing to pay him what he's on at United and B, prepared to start him as many times as he likes. So that ego and that drive and that determination that got him to, to, to winning five Ballon d'Ors is absolutely fantastic. But he probably doesn't surround himself with player people that are saying, look, Cristiano, come on, mm. you're not 22 anymore, you're 37 now. It's time to sort of, yes, try and stay at that level of what you're playing, but your game is going to have to adapt. Um, and, and there aren't many teams that would abandon their plans to, to just to introduce Cristiano and make it all about him. Football journalist Tom McDermott is my guest on the programme. Tom, while I've got you there, what's the consensus amongst Manchester United fans towards Harry Maguire? Yeah, I think Maguire, the two things with Harry Maguire, and, and probably both are, are not his fault, but the first is the, the fee that Manchester United paid to sign him, which was £80 million from Leicester City. So that was a world record fee for a defender at the time. You look at somebody like Virgil van Dijk, um, world-class player for Liverpool, he was, um, he was less than that. There were other defenders around Europe who cost less than that as well. So the first thing was, was the price. The second mistake Manchester United, and in particular the manager of, well, two managers ago, Oliver and Solskjaer, was that he gave him the captain's armband. So he not only paid £80 million for him, he, put, he gave him the, the, the captain's armband. So he, he was kind of on a hiding to nothing from the word go, because even when Manchester United in the 80s were performing probably at a similar level to what they are now, they had a, Brian Robson in there, and Brian Robson was England and Manchester United captain. And while everything was crumbling around him, he was still putting in world-class performances week in, week out. Brian Robson didn't win trophies for Manchester United for four or five years, but he got them there in the end and he put in world-class performances. Fast forward through that to Roy Keane, Eric Cantona, David Beckham had the, the armband. Gary Neville wasn't you know, flamboyant, but he was part of a successful team. All these guys were leaders. And the thing about Harry Maguire, in my opinion, is that he's probably what I would call a secondary central defender and not the main man. So, for example, if you put him next to Van Dijk at Liverpool, he'd be outstanding. He's never good enough to lead Manchester United, never good enough to be captain. And, and I think his performances have shown that he's, he's not worth that £80 million fee. So any sort of uh, mistake that he makes is kind of you know highlighted, reanalyzed and overanalyzed again because of that fee. And I think for, for Harry as well, I do have a bit of sympathy with him because I think there is a good defender there. But as I say, he's not your main man. He's not your number one central defender. He's almost your support defender. Um, and unfortunately for him, he's had, he's had that many opportunities when Varane is fit, Rafa Varane will play. And obviously Martinez is, is, is Ten Hag's man from, from Ajax, isn't he? So he, he'll always start him. So he's got an uphill battle. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's you know, in everyone's best interest if he follows Ronaldo out the door in the summer. Not because of similar circumstances, but because he's, he's nearing 30 now and he'll want to play more regularly. And it doesn't look like That'll happen at Old Trafford. What does Gareth Southgate see in him? Gareth Southgate picks players through loyalty. So the other side of the coin, Harry Maguire, the argument is that he's never let England down, which which is which is the case in the in the 2018 World Cup in in Russia, which England got to the semi final. He was he was fantastic in the Euros last year. He was part of the um, Euros team of the tournament. So you know all the other nations that were involved in the Euros were involved in that. He was one of the central defenders of the tournament. And there's an argument to suggest that he's never let England down. And, and, and that's why Gareth Southgate picked him um, to start the game against Iran earlier in the week. I think the thing for Harry Maguire is that international fo- football probably 
suits him better. Um, you saw the game against Iran midweek yesterday, the fourth for Iran and played for Porto Champions League. He's got a lot of goals, but the general quality um, of opponent won't probably be reached in, until the kind of quarters final stages where, where England may well face the likes of France and, and teams of that standard. So at the moment, you'd expect against Iran for Harry Maguire to perform well. You'd probably expect him to deal with um, you know the forward players that, that USA have in, in, in the next game. And obviously Gareth Bale is still a very good player, but he's not quite the Gareth Bale of, of three or four years ago. So you'd expect him to be able to to manage with Declan Rice in front of him and other defenders around him as well against that kind of standard player. So we'll see how good Maguire is and if it is kind of, you know, a bit of unfair treatment for Manchester United fans, the latter he goes on in the competition. But I do feel, or I do fear that he may get found out, for example, if Manchester, if England play France and it's uh, Kylian Mbappe who's got to come up against because that's a, that's a daunting task for anyone. Tom McDermott, lovely to have you on the programme. Thank you. Greatly appreciated. Cheers, chaps. All the best. It is coming up to 16 minutes away from 10. You're listening to SENZ. If you've got any thoughts or comments on the FIFA Football World Cup, big upset um, overnight. Clearly Argentina getting beaten by Saudi Arabia. Uh, Upsets in sport. Text me. What are the biggest upsets in sport? What can you remember? doesn't have to be at the FIFA Football World Cup level. Japan beating South Africa, Rugby World Cup. Big upset. Japan beating Ireland, Rugby World Cup. Big upset. Jump on the phone. Anything you want to discuss, happy to take your call. Anything on your mind. 15 and a half minutes away from 10. Coming up after 10 o'clock, we'll bring you highlights of the football games from last night, earlier this morning, four games in all. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. Denmark, Tunisia playing out a nil-all draw. Mexico and Poland playing out a nil-all draw. Uh, Lewandowski missing a penalty there, which would have given Poland the victory. Australia scoring, scoring early against France, but France just doing the demolition. The Australian media have been pretty brutal on the Australian football team, but I just wonder whether you're up against one of the French teams, one of the great sides of all time. A little bit concerned by France coming into this tournament. Uh, they come in as defending champions, but it was a very young side f- uh, four or five years ago when they won it. And you sort of felt that maybe this time around uh, the amount of money their players are getting paid, the reputations they've gone on and established that it might be, you know, you might maybe just lose some of that cohesion. It might become about too many individuals and too difficult to manage the egos. But looking at that performance today, they could just go back to back. The French might just end up winning this World Cup as well and really establishing the reputations of some of those players. And now the games tonight, and we've got to have our little predictions here, don't we? I've been sort of calling them. Games tonight, first one, and we'll bring you live coverage of this. It's Morocco taking on Croatia. Now, Croatia, they were finalists at the last World Cup, weren't they, the Croats? Um, Croatia going to beat Morocco here 3-0. Okay, you've heard it, 3-0. I'm going to pick Japan to upset Germany 1-0. So I've gone Japan to beat Germany 1-0. I think Spain will comfortably beat Costa Rica, and I think the result of that game will be 3-0 to Spain. And then we've got Belgium versus Canada. And I think that could be ugly. So I'm going to go Belgium beating Canada 5-0. Spain beating Costa Rica 2-0. Japan beating Germany 1-0. Croatia beating Morocco 2-0. I've probably changed that around a little bit. So you taking notes there, Ben? Uh, I think you've 
put some pretty <laughs> freakish scores in there. Why is that? 2-0 against Morocco, Croatia? Well, I was more alluding to Belgium, Canada. Well, I think Belgium, number one side in the world for a lot of it, recent years. I think they'll d- d- destroy Canada. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I just think they'll put five past them. Well, I think they put England put six on um, Iran. Yeah. Oh, I think Belgium are capable and of putting... And you thought Argentina was going to put five past Saudi Arabia. I did. Yeah. And that backfired, I, I, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to change my thoughts on this one. It's football. I know that it'll probably end up being one or two nil, but I'm gonna my the one you should be the one that you should be um questioning me on is the Japan Germany game. No, I'm just really excited to see Canada, to be mm. honest. Mm. Anyway, let's go to the phones. Hi Mark. Hi Mark, how you going? Good thanks. Good. I'm quite excited by Canada myself, besides Australia, and uh, Canada would be my number two team. So I reckon Canada can win their first round, and I reckon they can go pretty well in uh, the World Cup competition, all things considered, because, I mean, anything can happen. No one expected Saudi Arabia to beat Argentina, but they won that. I think anything can happen in a one-off game. I'm not sure that anything can happen, though, three consecutive games in a row, four consecutive games in a row. So, yeah, look, I, I like your optimism towards Canada. I spent a bit of time in Canada, so I do have a an affinity for them, but I also just think Belgium will be too clinical. Well, I think, I mean, Australia's used to the hot weather over there, but I don't think some people, especially the Poms, are taking all that uh, well to the hotter conditions. I mean, you know, I for one think uh, the World Cup should never have gone to Qatar. I mean, you know, it, all the corrupt dealings that Sepp Blatter set up when they first got it, all that considered... I just think the heat can be too much for uh, people from colder countries like England. So I think the weather's definitely playing a part in uh, the way some teams play, but we'll just have to see how it goes over the whole competition. But, you know, all things considered, I think Australia can go further and do pretty well. I think we can get through to the next round uh, because I think the next run won't be as hard as France. I mean, yes, they are the world champions, but uh, I don't think they're invincible. And... um, you know, we did get the first goal today, and that was through very uh, well-structured play. And I think Graham Arnold, considering, and I'm a bit biased when I say this, but he led Sydney FC to a, a number of uh, premierships over here in the A-League, and I think we're in good hands with him as coach. Yeah, I mean, you've got to beat Denmark, you've got to beat Tunisia. Um, look, I think you're capable of beating both. I think Denmark clearly is, you know, nil or daughter to go against Tunisia, but... Yeah, I mean, if you can get past Denmark, get past Tunisia. Uh, look, it, it's look. I, I think France just that good a side. Uh, you can sit there and criticise and critique Australia, but France are France. They're defending World Cup champions. Look at their payroll. Um, yeah, that's right. And you got them on a good day. You were hoping that maybe you could do what Saudi Arabia did against Argentina, but clearly this French team, um, yeah, the nucleus of the World Cup winning side is still there. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too hard on the Australian team, and therefore. Yeah, um, what do we really know? still know about them? Probably not a lot at the moment, you know. You clearly get a better idea of where Australia are at when they do take on Denmark or Tunisia. That's right. And, I mean, it's like, you know, no one expected Australia to uh, get through to the further rounds when John Aloisi took that famous penalty in the early 2000s. But he got it and we, we got through. So, you know, I'm not giving up on Australia. And, you know, the media over here... I would say it's kind of like a 60-40 split in that 60% are not so hard on them. You've, you've had your hard-nosed um, kind of critics at the 40% level. But by and large, you know, we're totally behind our guys on a greater 
level of support and you know we're behind them to go as far as they can and we're pretty confident in them all so yeah no hey well said mark and look australia don't have a great legacy in international football they do to a degree but not not truly on the world stage france do you know a remarkable side um so are you wishing or being a little unrealistic of what the australian media australian fans expect from their australian football team I mean, Australia are just a nation of achievers. I think they're the best sporting nation in the world. It wouldn't have surprised me if they had managed the draw today. It wouldn't have surprised me if they had a won, because that's just what Australian teams do. It wouldn't have surprised me too if they had shown a level of bad sportsmanship, because that's what Australian teams do. Nothing is always controversy with Australian teams. But we'll have to wait and see whether they can qualify and get out of Pool D. We'll look at some of the highlights after 10 o'clock. Paolo Nutini. Wonderful, wonderful voice. Download, get on your different music platforms and listen to the Scottish genius, his range and his variety of musicianship and singing is remarkable. Unbelievable talent. Ben Francis, thank you for introducing me to the great man. Anyway, this hour we will bring you some highlights of day three of the FIFA Football World Cup, courtesy of our commentary team here at SEN in Australia and SENZ here in New Zealand. You would have woken up, you would have heard the news that Saudi Arabia beat Argentina two goals to one. They were down one goal to nil at half time, a penalty to Argentina to the great Messi. Without further ado, let's bring you the highlights of that historic match. Di Maria, oh, a lovely pass to the penalty spot. Defence comes in, shot, great save. Awais with a brilliant save. And it needed to be the ball falling back to Messi and he very nearly opened his account. He's coming across, I think, for a VAR check for a possible penalty, we've been told. Definitely some, some holding there, whether that's a penalty or not. And a penalty has been awarded to Argentina. The whistle goes... Messi slowly just passes it into the net as Awais goes the wrong way and Messi opens the account for Argentina. Argentina collect again. Slide rule pass through the middle. That should be onside. Goes past the keeper and into the goal it goes. And I believe that that is a second goal for Argentina. Lautaro Martinez, the scorer. And we're going to give it offside. Oh, <laughs> that is not good for football. I think that was even closer than Messi's one. Into the uh, penalty area. Across the face of goal, it's there! Saudi Arabia have pulled one back. It was a wonderful ball forward and Al-Shari has scored for Saudi Arabia. What a start to the second half. It was going to curl to the back post. A shot again. It's in! Saudi Arabia have got a second. Can you believe it? Aldaswari has put it in the back of the net. Argentina didn't clear... And all the substitutes join in the celebration. There's the whistle. Saudi Arabia have beaten Argentina. What an amazing game. The celebrations are going off on the pitch. Argentinian players standing around. Their unbeaten run has come to an end. They cannot believe it. They lose the opening game of their World Cup campaign. Saudi Arabia win theirs for the first time ever. The final score here, Argentina 1, Saudi Arabia 2. 
Yeah, one of the great upsets, England beating the United, United States, beating England 1950, one of the great upsets. There's been a few, Senegal beating France 2002. Um, I think it was Algeria beating, was it Argentina back in 1982, was it? Or was it Italy? Anyway, there's been a lot of major upsets at FIFA World Cup. That one will go down as one of the biggest of all time. Now, their manager is Hervé Renard. Is that correct, Ben? the Saudi Arabian manager, and you've got a few statistics on him or on the team? Oh, on him, and he's quite an interesting coaching resume. So for those that aren't too familiar, he actually uh, won the African Cup of Nations with Zambia in 2012, and then again in 2015 with the Ivory Coast. Okay, so he's a quality manager. He's got he's got history, and he's got a history of getting the best out of maybe teams with not that big a reputation. Yeah, he's also managed... Uh, before he was at Saudi Arabia, uh, Morocco, uh, he ma- managed Lille. He, when he first began, he even managed Cambridge United. Well, I tell you what, he could end up back in the um, English Premier League. This is what the World Cup does, mate. It is a stage and a platform for players and also managers. And it's amazing how many players establish their reputation at a World Cup and then get picked up by the big clubs. And we got some audio f- from him. Coming to the World Cup, you need to believe on uh, yourself. Everything can happen in football. Sometimes the your opponent is uh, not at his uh, best uh, motivation. This is normal. It's also happened to us sometimes when we are playing a lawyer team. This is sometimes what the people they don't understand. Uh, do you imagine uh, Lionel Messi to play against Saudi Arabia? Of course, he will tell him, uh, "Yes, we need to do to start very well." But uh, you know, the motivation is not like if you are playing Brazil. Huh? This is normal. This is part of football. So we made this story for the football. It will stay forever. This is the most important. But uh, we also need to think about uh, looking forward. We still have two games very difficult for us. Yeah, two difficult games indeed. This is a tough group, Group C, Mexico and Poland. Um, we're going to have those highlights for you shortly too, but both powerhouses of international football, not an easy one. I'd imagine he's pretty well remunerated coaching Saudi Arabia, and I'd imagine he was even more well remunerated uh, probably on an incentive-based or a bonus-based pro, um, contract, getting up and beating Argentina by two goals to one. The next game was a Group D game, and that was played between Denmark and Tunisia. This is a big chance, and the shot's deflected, oh. and Kasper Schmeichel was completely caught off guard. Mohamed Draghi, just as we were talking about the two wing-backs, fired one in. It deflected off the Danish defender. If it had gone the other side of the post, Schmeichel was beaten. Jabali's broken the line. I'm not sure if he was offside there, but he's managed oh. to squeeze the ball past Schmeichel, and now the flag goes up, as we keep seeing in this World Cup. They're happy to rely on VAR. Jabali had broken the line. It was a long ball over the top, but the goal has been disallowed. Now the ball can be played in. It's towards Leiduni. Eventually fell for him and just blazed wide. He hit that with so much venom. Anyway, the Tunisians have taken it forward, and Sakni oh. has fallen to Jabali. And a oh, fantastic a save. save by Kasper Schmeichel. They looked to the assistant for a flag. It didn't come, and Jabali's had the best chance of the game. And the ball played for by Christensen. Ooh. Looked to be offside. The ball's Safe. palmed down. There's a chance there. Still in no! for Denmark, and it's in the back of the net, but the offside no. flag is up. As I suspected, I think Olsen it was who strayed in the build-up. Space for Christian Eriksen, who's driving towards goal. Eriksen, oh, wonderful save. save. 
the first real save like that we've seen from Eamon Darman and he stood up to the task to palm it behind. Corner of the evening. It's deep. It's up. Christensen oh! into the back post. How on earth has Cornelius missed that? Cornelius was almost in the goal. He went in. The ball hit the post. And Tunisia get a massive, massive let off from the corner. It's great for us. We get more late drama. And there is the final whistle. Tunisia, hang on. The spoils shared in the opening game in Group D. Yep, it is eight minutes after 10. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll bring you the highlights of the other two games that were played earlier this morning. Mexico, Poland, France, Australia, as we count down to bringing you live coverage around about 10 to 11 here tonight of Morocco versus Croatia. Anyway, we are talking sport. We're going to bring you live coverage very shortly of Morocco taking on Croatia. But just a chance to reflect on day three of the FIFA Football World Cup. We've brought you highlights of Saudi Arabia beating Argentina 2-1. Just had the highlights of Tunisia and Denmark, which ended up being a nil-all draw. Now let's take you to Mexico versus Poland. International to oh, here we go. Here's the ball taken away, though, deep inside the Polish half. Mexico, early ball, and cross to the far post, and Vega oh, hits his upper thigh as he tried to volley it from a very acute angle. Cheap turnover, almost cost Poland badly there. Now Alvarez in a central midfield position. No real pressure on him. Or dink to the oh, great run. side. Great run from Gallardo. He's got it behind Chesney, and it's scrambled just oh. wide. Oh, I don't know how. The Polish have avoided disaster. Chris Beath. He's has had a lock, and the signal will be penalty oh, to my Poland. Goodness. And a yellow card dished out also to Moreno. Robert Lewandowski has a little wry smile on his face. A couple of deep breaths. He's done this hundreds of times. He's a killer. He's got this. He approaches. Oh! He's got Joa Lohan to his left. What a moment. What, what a, a save. Still not clear to the area. Now it will be. Just- there you go. So it ended up being nil all. The great Lewandowski missing a penalty that would have given Poland the victory. Always remember Poland playing England in the 1986 uh, World Cup. And I think um, England needed to win that game 4-0 to sort of progress and couldn't get the job done, even though they absolutely dominated Poland. Might have even been, did it end up being 3-0, was it? Was it against Poland? It ended up being 3-0. And I think it was Lineker that might have scored the hat-trick. And Lineker, which became very much the cat try for Lineker. And Lineker. Anyway, I digress. Uh, The last game uh, was a Group D game, and that was played between France and our neighbours, Australia. To Lecky on the right flank, and a good touch as well. Pavard hit the ground, the cross comes in. Goodwin! Craig Goodwin has the opener. Australia 1-0 up on the French. Australia's moment on centre stage. And the world now knows who the Socceroos are. Matthew Lecky, the cross comes in again, the French, they score! Adrian Rabiot on the end of the cross coming in. And it repeats chances, repeat four A's, and another one coming up here for Mbappe to Rabiot towards Giroud! And France go 2-1 up, the reigning champions, not down for too long. The centre circle plays a long ball vertical towards Antoine Griezmann, clips it back in! How did Kylian Mbappe miss? He came steaming through the middle of the 18-yard box. He was completely goal side of Australia's back four. He got underneath it and shinned it over the bar. Riley McGrath at the left edge of the 18-yard box. He hits a cross in, header on target, and hits the posts. Hits the posts and deflects away out for a goal kick. Jackson Irvine. Well, that happened out of nothing. The French were flat-footed. 
go again down the left through Tio Hernandez. He clips across into the back post. The bicycle quick. Yeah, well, hey, the bicycle kick, I beg your pardon. Not far away from Olivier Giroud. He got on the end of it, but he's directed it wide. Antoine Griezmann in midfield picks it up just behind the striker. Good one, two to Tio Hernandez inside the 18 yard box. Cuts it back. Griezmann with the shot, cleared off the goal line. Getting back as quick as he could was Aziz Bayic. Dembele is wide on the right flank and retrieves it for the French, gets it back in and this time Kylian Mbappe does score. The golden boy of French football, one of the world's best, Kylian Mbappe opens his accounts. Mbappe dazzling the crowd again by getting past Nathaniel Atkinson, left foot across, comes in, back post, head up, goal. It is a fourth for France, it is a second for Olivier Giroud. Ball comes in from the corner, and Matt Ryan makes a strong save, flying across to his left. The first save he's made tonight, and it's a good one as well. So there you go, France taking on, beating Australia 4-1. The next game for Australia will be, I think, Saturday against Tunisia. France will play Denmark. Uh, the game's coming up tonight, Morocco. Uh, game's coming up tonight, yeah, Morocco taking on Croatia. That's at 11 o'clock. We'll bring you live coverage from about 10 to 11, so in around about half an hour's time. Then we've got Germany, Japan, 2 a.m., 5 a.m. New Zealand time. Spain take on Costa Rica, one of the real powerhouses internationally in recent times, Spain. And then we've got Belgium taking on Canada at 8 a.m. And then tomorrow night, which I guess is technically tomorrow, isn't it, is Switzerland versus Cameroon. The African nations outside of Cameroon have really yet to step up at FIFA World Cup. Uh, a lot of depth now in African football, but no nation has really taken this FIFA Football World Cup by the scruff of the neck. Will it be this World Cup and which one of the nations will do it? I saw enough in Senegal, even though they lost to the Dutch 2-0, uh, to not write them off. We'll take a break here on SENZ. We'll come back. We are going to talk some futsal with Marvin Eakins, the national men's coach, shortly as well. Um, futsal, of course, um, basically indoor football. Very, very cool game. A game where if you've got kids or who are aspiring to be very good soccer players, I suggest they play some futsal. teaches them a lot of skills that I think you don't always develop on a full-size football field. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.